We're bringing this meeting back to order. <coughs> okay, welcome to the Queen Anne's County Commissioner meeting. This is a public meeting that is being aired live on our local cable television station, QAC TV 7. These media broadcasts provide county citizens an opportunity to watch and review our scheduled public sessions. To comply with the governor's proclamation declaring a state of emergency in Maryland and to minimize the person-to-person -person spread of COVID-19, we ask that our citizens stay home and watch the county commissioner's meeting live on our QAC website, www.qac.org live. Press and public comments is still encouraged. Citizens can email comments to publiccomment at qac.org. We will accept comments to approximately 6 p.m. Comments received will be read during the press and public comment time on this evening's agenda. And we have the address up here on the screen. Citizens may also submit written testimony to the county commissioners by mail, 107 North Liberty Street, Centerville, Maryland, 21617, or by email at QAC commissioners and administrator at QAC.org. We will now stand and led, be led in the Pledge of Allegiance by Commission President Jim Moran. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. If we can remain standing for all of our frontline responders for this uh, COVID-19. Thank you very much. For people who are watching at home, they might not be able to see on the screen, Commissioners Wilson and Wilson are here, there, but everybody has been spread out six feet apart. Thank you, Commissioner Corcorino. Okay, we just had a closed session under Section 3-305B1 of the General Provisions Article to discuss personnel and Section 3-305B3 to discuss land acquisition. No decisions were made in those closed sessions. We can now uh, approve today's agenda for our meeting on March 24th, along with the regular and closed session minutes from your March 10th, 2020 meeting. They were all distributed electronically for review. Are there any additions and or corrections? There are none, so motion to accept. Move to approve second. We have a motion and a second. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Thank you. All right, thank you, Commissioners. We have about um, uh, 10 action items under tab three. We also have a presentation scheduled here. Do you want to do the presentation first with uh, Dr. Ciotola since he is here at this time? Okay. A little off script. Um, Dr. Ciotola, and there are a few other department directors here uh, to provide a, uh, an update on the COVID-19 situation. So I'll turn it over to Dr. Ciotola, our health officer, and uh, uh, He's in charge of our EOC operations on this uh, this uh, public health crisis. Doctor C. Good afternoon. Good evening. Mm -hmm. Good evening. <laughs> I think I don't know what time it is. I guess the sun's still out. So, um, since our last health department update two weeks ago, obviously things have changed even more than what we were talking about then with COVID nineteen. I think all of you are aware that the governor had declared a state of emergency for this pandemic that we are now facing, not only in the United States and in Queen Anne County, but across the world. Queen Anne County is now under a state of emergency. 
that was declared on the, I believe, the 19th of this month by the commissioners. Essentially, I am the incident commander of the EOC, the Emergency Operations Center, which has been set up in the health department. I have support from the Department of Emergency Services with our emergency planners, emergency staff, as well as Director Scott Haas. We have agency representation in there so that we are able to address the needs of the community as they develop. <coughs> Where we stand now, the governor has put significant restrictions on public gatherings to the point of 10 or less. And as most citizens know, most public gatherings have been prevented and part of that declaration closing malls, closing access to many large functions. I want to reassure the citizens of Queen Anne County that the government of Queen Anne County is still operational to its full capacity and that we are functioning as an active government. We have done multiple measures to protect not only the employees and staff, but also the citizens of Queen Anne County by what we're saying is social distancing. Basically, we're trying to keep people at a six-foot distance from each other when they are in any type of activity or communication. And I really appreciate the fact that the commissioners have abided by that with not having a public meeting tonight, but by using tele-capability, video capability, because that is how most of the meetings are now occurring. The reason for that is that COVID-19 is a respiratory virus. It's a respiratory disease that is spread by droplets. Someone coughs, the normal distance is approximately three to four feet of the particle spread. That's why we've said six-foot distance. Cover your mouth if you sneeze or cough. Wash your hands. Use hand sanitizer. Clean the surfaces. 70% alcohol, bleach, Lysol wipes. Those are the normal things that we use at home. As far as our response with the EOC activated to a partial activation, we have the critical component needs that we have in the EOC to address any emergency or urgency that may occur. We are in daily, if not weekly, communication with our health partners, both Shore, Hospital System, Queen Anne Emergency Center, and Anne Arundel Medical Center. We do our updates three times a week to our partners and to our CART partners, which are all of the adjunct we're doing every, every Tuesday and every Thursday. To say that we're on a lot of meetings with the state would be an understatement, but it's important to know what's going on. And as most people have heard and seen through the news media, there is a real delay in getting our supplies specifically our personal protection material, face masks, gowns, N95 respirator masks, gloves. 
These are all in short supply because of the demand. We have been able to get some SNS, which is from the national stockpile here in the county, and we're distributing that to our allied health providers, specifically the nursing home, hospice, and the primary care providers as much as we can supply. I can say that EMS, at this point in time, has sufficient supplies to be able to protect not only our providers, but also the citizens that encounter a 911 response from our agencies. The hospitals have essentially changed their policies regarding visiting and who they're allowing in the hospital at this time. That's the reason that we have requested that the county buildings are essentially locked down but have access by evaluation. And all employees starting tomorrow, I believe, will be screened for any symptomatology and temperature. We have already been doing that actively in the EOC. Temperatures are monitored by everyone there in the morning and then in the evening. Six-foot spacing has occurred in the EOC, and one reason that we did move to the health department for our MOP Emergency Operations Center was because of the fact we could use the two large conference rooms on the second floor to be able to spread out the personnel. We are working, we are functioning, we are dealing with it. Now, where do we stand? To date, Maryland has 350 confirmed COVID-19 cases. Yesterday, we had 288. We are trying to stop the spike. That is the reason for all of the social distancing, the closure of schools, the closure of businesses, is to try and keep people home as much as possible. The reason for that is with the epidemiology reports that we all saw in health industry. I was at a, as you know, the governor had appointed me to the OMS corporate board. At the board meeting <coughs> last, probably on the 10th, we had a report from the epidemiology and expectations. And that report was quite daunting and very impressive as to the expectation of spread and case presentation and what this would mean not only for our citizens but for our hospitals and the need for ICU beds and the, because of this being a respiratory illness, the need for ventilators in the ICUs. It became very apparent that with the guidance from the epidemiology from the School of Medicine at the University of Maryland, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, as well as Johns Hopkins Hospital. They advised the governor of the possibilities of what could occur if we did not try and slow down or dampen the curve. And it's not a curve, folks. It's a spike. It is a straight-up spike, as if an F-18 was taking off. It's straight up. How long this will last? Are we being successful in dampening the curve? This is a critical week, and next week is a critical week. And we determine the crit 
how successful we're being, by how many new cases are being identified, how many cases are presenting that require hospitalization. One of the major issues that we've had is a lack in testing medium. It's a viral medium that we need with a specific swab, and it's a nasopharyngeal swab up the, the nose. Not, they're not comfortable. <laughs> Bring tears to your eyes. Okay? But they are necessary. There, and the reason that we do not really know how many people have COVID-19 is we've not been able to do mass testing because of the limitation in our supply of test material. That's been left to those most critical individuals that present with respiratory symptoms. We are trying to get more medium. The more that we test, the more indication of what we will really have. But let's talk about COVID-19. We have a virus that we know nothing about. We're in uncharted water, and trust me, we're writing the playbook day by day for this because there is no really set protocol. So what we're doing is essentially what we feel is best practice from a medical standpoint. 80% of the individuals who contract this virus are going to have mild to moderate flu-like symptoms. That's why they call it ILI, influenza-like illness. So, real quick, Dr. C, just because I know a lot of people have questions along these lines, so I'm going to catch you as you go so that the numbers kind of make sense to people. So when you say 80%, so you've given a number of 350, say, of confirmed cases. Is it safe I'm to say I'm going to break it down <coughs> even more as I go okay. on. All right. Okay? Yep. 80% of those individuals that are infected with the COVID-19 virus have mild to moderate. About 20% and this is difficult to judge how we're doing in the U.S. because we're looking at the statistics from the World Health Organization, what is occurring in Europe, and what has occurred in China. 20% may end up needing some hospitalization. Now, of that 20%, any 3 to 5% require ICU ventilation support in the hospital. That other percentage that's in the hospital will need fluid, balance, respiratory therapy, maybe respiratory treatment. But the majority of these patients will get better and will have no significant sequelae or ill effects after recovery. What does that say we're doing here? Where are our numbers? To date, there's been four reported deaths in the state of Maryland. Those deaths have been in the, in the 50 to 60 age range. <coughs> Compare that to flu. And we only have flu numbers that are hospitalized. In the state of Maryland, for this flu season up to date, there have been 3,625 people admitted to the hospital for flu-related symptoms. Of the adults that have been hospitalized, 
in the state, we've had 45 deaths in adults in the state. We've had five pediatric hospitalized deaths. <clears throat> so 50 total deaths. So. Total for the flu. Yes. But that does not indicate the number of flu cases. This is only talking about the flu cases that have been Hospital. hospitalized. We have widespread flu throughout the state of Maryland. We have widespread flu in Queen Anne County. But that is what we're seeing for a flu season, both a combination of type A and type B flu. Now, where are we with COVID? As I told you, statewide, today we have 350 cases. We have two jurisdictions in the state that do not have any confirmed cases, Dorchester County and Allegheny County. Kent County got their first today, and I believe that the health officer, Bill Webb, is putting out a press release regarding that case. Now, where do we stand county by county? Queen Anne County has one confirmed COVID-19 case at this time. We are not awaiting any health department PUI results, person under investigation. We have had 19 negative PUIs up to this point through the health department. Those are the tests that go to the state lab, the Department of Health. We've had six PUIs under investigation for EMS response. The majority of those have been negative. We have three that we are pending on evaluation. That changes depending upon the transport, if it's a respiratory call or a sick person call. We have to rely upon the hospitals to, file, to follow up if the hospitals actually test them, but when we EMS is taking those precautions. We have not had a confirmed EMS transport of a COVID-19 in this jurisdiction. Doc, that's probably not a, the 19 to 1, 19 negative to the 1 positive. Is, that's probably not what the, the average is no. um, in terms of total tests versus positive tests? Right, correct. I mean, and you'll also see the percentage as t more testing is done. What we have done in the county, in conjunction with the four other jurisdictions, Talbot, Caroline, Kent and Dorchester. Queen Anne set up an alternate testing site. And we set that up last Friday. We worked on it for about 10 days at the request of the hospital system to try and unload the amount of patients that were coming to the emergency room being referred by their primary care physicians. So what we set up was the alternate testing at Chesapeake College. And the way we set that up is we sent a blast fax to all the primary cares in all five jurisdictions to ask if you have a patient that you feel from a clinical standpoint needs testing, we are going to be able to test 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock at the college with a drive-by. They don't get out of the vehicle, but we had backup support from EMS we had somebody with significant respiratory. We did 
40 last Friday. Monday, yesterday, we did another 21. So we've done approximately 61, and the breakdown is that it is pretty across the board for four of the jurisdictions, but obviously having the test here in Queen Anne, we identified 26 individuals were residents of Queen Anne, 17 were residents of Talbot, 10 were residents of Kent County, four from Dorchester, and four from Caroline. Those lab results have been sent to LabCorp. They picked the courier, picked them up. We are planning to work tomorrow. We have approximately 45 remaining test kits. When I left the EOC this evening, we had about 21 to 22 individuals scheduled for testing tomorrow. We will test who shows up who has a referred lab slip from their primary care until we run out of supplies. I do not know when we're getting another shipment, but right now we've requested more from the state. We will see what happens. We will know then a little bit more about community transmission. The one case that was confirmed here in Queen Anne County was secondary to international travel, which was required from that individual's employer. We at this point in time have no confirmed by positive test for community transmission, but that's only a matter of time. The more tests that we send, we will see it. We have community transmission. That's why the absolute importance of social distancing, hand washing, covering your nose when you sneeze or cough. Dr. Sid, when you're talking about the community transmission, it could be transmitted not necessarily from the person that, that, that tested positive where they were, but somebody else could have COVID-19 and maybe not experiencing a severity of symptoms and they could be they could well, that, transmit. That's right? one of the things we're going to talk about. How do you know who's transmitting? Because once an individual gets exposed, usually symptoms do not appear till three to five days. And if it's a mild case, which it is in most people, that may be if like, well, I got a cold or I got a little upper respiratory stuff going on. But if it's the cough with the fever, then there's, they are contagious. The other piece that we really don't know about this is how long an individual is contagious after symptoms have occurred. There's some indication that seven to 10 days is the normal course of this virus. That's why we've said if we ask you to do self-isolation, which we are asking all the individuals that we test until we get a result back, we have asked that you self-isolate at home for 14 days and limit your public exposure because we really don't know how long they're spreading that virus. Now, how long does that virus last on this table or on a cardboard box? We don't know. The supposition is anywhere from nine hours on hard surfaces to maybe 72, 72 hours on softer surfaces. Yep. So that's why there's so many unknowns with this. That's why we have to be a little bit more overprotective 
an overreactive than underreactive. I'd like to be ahead of this curve and not trying to catch up. Queen Anne has always led, and I plan to lead here, as with DES and the Health Department. I think the people have to understand that the variation in the symptomatology is important to recognize. If you have a low-grade fever, you develop a cough. Stay home. If your symptoms worsen, call your primary care provider. Now, by saying that, most of the primary care providers are not seeing these patients in their office. What they're doing is evaluating them either with a phone call or some type of a video presentation. It's at that point whether they recommend that they get viral testing, either viral testing for influenza or for COVID-19. And let me just say, just because you have a positive viral scan for influenza A or B does not necessarily mean that you may not also have COVID-19. So you could, you could technically have both. Exactly. From a microbiology standpoint and a virology standpoint, both viruses could be present at the same time. That's why it's important. If you are ill and have symptoms, stay home. Self-quarantine yourself and protect your family, your coworkers, and your fellow citizens. So the one thing that remains consistent, Dr. C, is the fact that, that you will have a temperature, though. You'll have a mild... It starts off with a low-grade temperature, 100.4. Okay. But during symptomatology, we have seen patients who end up with a temp of 103 or 104 who are really wiped out. They have significant myalgias, very fatigued, and return to work is based upon their symptomatology. At that seven to 10 day mark, as this virus goes through its course, that's when they're starting to feel better. And this is without any treatment now. Remember, we don't have a treatment regimen. There's been a lot said in the press about hydroxychloroquine, which is Plaquenil, which is a medication that has been in use for years and it's used for an autoimmune. Also, the use of a Z-pack, erythromycin, in conjunction with that, has been able to show some improvement in symptomatology. But there is no confirmed medical identified treatment for this now, except supportive care, fluids, ventilatory support, and monitoring the patients. So, so the, the line of my question, though, um, is, is, is if people can take their temperature at home and they're running a normal temperature, they may have a cough or they're sneezing or they're blowing their nose. If they have a normal body temperature of 96.8 or whatever in that range, they're probably fine. If they are afebrile at that point in time, there's no indication that this is COVID. The symptomatology really starts when that low-grade temp and then the slow cough starts. Okay. And then the respiratory discomfort become You feel like you got a weight on your chest. You have difficulty taking a deep breath. Those are the lower respiratory symptomatology that we see. Okay. Usually what we are doing now, and the recommendation is 72 hours symptom-free. 
And that 72-hour period <coughs> of symptom-free is usually at that 7- to 10-day mark. The interesting piece to this, all the testing that we are doing now, it's taking anywhere from 5 to 7 days to get the results. So most of the time, by the time you get the result on this patient, they've passed the peak of the illness and are in the recovery phase. So what we say is 72 hours with no temperature elevation, no fever, without using Tylenol or Advil or any other pyretics, and an improving or absent loss of the cough. Should be safe to return to normal interaction and work. Now, I think I've said enough, explained enough, and I'll leave it open for questions. I don't want to hog your whole night. <laughs> so, Dr. C., based on the numbers, at 20% of 350, would it be safe to say we probably have about 75, 70 to 75 hospitalized statewide right now? We can't get that data. That data is not being released as to the number of patients in the hospital or the number of patients in the ICU. Is there a reason for that? Um, I'm not really sure. It's I mean, because that's comforting information for people to know that 80% of the people that are getting infected are not winding up in the hospital I think or dead. What, I think when you, the releases have been done through the different jurisdictions, they indicate whether the patient is hospitalized or stable condition. I would say that probably 75% that we have seen of this 350 are not hospitalized. Okay. From the, but How about not, our patient here locally? Locals? Not hospitalized. Home. Okay. Has been home since diagnosed. <clears throat> when you have uh, a person who's under investigation, um, are you getting a history of, from them as to who they've been in contact with, where they've been? We or do is that the after there's a positive? We do the contact tracing when we have a positive test. And a confirmed positive COVID-19, we then do complete contact tracing tracking on that individual and all of the contact not only from the time that their test was done but when their symptoms first occurred. You say we have an additional 26 <clears throat> Queen Anne's tested now. We've had 20 so far and then an additional We've done 61. We've done 61 so far. Just in Queen Anne? Those other ones, I thought you said the other counties had some mixed into that they 61. Were, they were individuals that came to We did 26 as of today, but I don't know how many are from Queen Anne for tomorrow. Gotcha. But, but, and, but we had 20 prior, 19 negatives, one positive, right? Correct. And we don't know if we're even starting to get those results back from Friday's testing yet. LabCorp is running about seven days now for running those lab results. Is there a push to get those, the results time sped up to get it back quicker to be able to Get people in the, the, labs, the labs are trying to upscale their inventory as far as personnel and equipment to get this done. Both LabCorp and Quest are two of the major commercial labs that are doing this. Again, if you can take your temperature, take your temperature. And if it's normal, don't panic. I wouldn't panic even if you had a low-grade fever. I guess one of the most important things to remember is that a lot of folks out here that are that are panicking or concerned about going to work is 
um, the chance that they could get it. Or I don't feel good. Maybe I have it already. I, I need to. I need to find out. One of the things that you can do for yourself is to take your temperature at home. If you have a normal temperature, you probably don't have COVID-19. You're not running a fever. Chances are you do not have COVID-19. All right. So, Dr. Seattle, do you, uh, on a regular basis, have conversation with all the health officers throughout the, the state? Is that part of uh... We have a call Monday, Wednesday, and Friday okay. with all the state health officers as well as the Deputy Secretary of Health and what other portions of the Department of Health and allied agencies that is important for information coming out. So Thursday will be two weeks since the governor started the uh, social distancing, closing down non-essential businesses, and our schools all closed. And in that two-week period is more than enough time to actually see some of these, if you were infected, you would and you reached out to your doctor, possibly you would have got tested. And I guess you know, piggybacking on what, what Commissioner Wilson said, in talking to all these the health officers, <clears throat> is there is there information that can be disseminated to the public? I think because there's a lot of fear out there, a whole lot of fear. And I think you know, to the standpoint where it's paralyzing for some people. Some people don't want to go to work. Some people just you know, are, are losing their minds, stuck in a house. And if, if out of these 350 cases, and how many are, are you know, uh, excuse me, out of the 350 positive uh, test results, uh, how many of those 350 actually had to go to a hospital? How many had to get on a respirator? I think these kind of numbers, you know, if, if they were released to the public, and I don't know if that's a, I don't know why it would be a HIPAA issue, but, you know, saying that statewide we have, you know, <laughs> yep. 50 people in a hospital and 12 of them are respirators. I, I think that helps calm the nerves. And I don't know if you could pass that message along to your. We have been we've been asking for that information, and okay. I think it's a question of the the hospital associations and the Department of Health being able to give accurate information to that. And I think that's been one because a lot of patients that come into the emergency room in respiratory distress may not necessarily get a COVID test until they've already been in the hospital and start to get worse, and then they're trying to rule out whether it's COVID-19. Well, so when you're looking at hospital admissions, you have to be very careful that you have true documented diagnosis of why that patient's there, okay? Of these 350 patients, yes, it would, like, it would really be nice to know how many had to be hospitalized, for what period of time, how many required ventilatory support or ICU. Those, I think, are things that we're trying, data points that we're trying to collect. I agree and, with you. I do feel that that's important information to help relieve the anxiety, the level of anxiety. And that's why I'm saying 80% of the people that get this and the ones that we're the most concerned about are those with significant comorbidities or existing medical conditions. And individuals 85 and older is the worst that we have to deal with as far as outcome probability. So I'm trying to give a level of calmness to this and understand that we're looking at this aggressively to try and protect as many people as we can and if they do get sick, we're trying to do the best we can to 
get them through it. And I understand that, and I appreciate that. I just think that there, there's a lot of people when they see, for instance, what you're talking about is accuracy is, I think it's every morning at 10 a.m., they come out with a snapshot of, of what's going on right there at that single moment. I think Johns Hopkins does this. and, and we're, for instance, on a, we're on a state call every morning. We get the results between MEMA and the Department of Health is right. what is going on. But I think that the public reads 349, 350, whatever the number is, and they, I, I would imagine a good portion of them just assume that they're all in a hospital and they're all on a ventilator. And I think that that's, that's not the case, and I think that people need to understand that, you know, that while this is a deadly virus, uh, percentage-wise, those numbers aren't that high. And I, I, when, you I, look at, when you look at the deaths from influenza? Correct. And I think that's what people have to understand. The influenza deaths are much higher than with COVID-19. Dr. C2, to back up Jim's point, just in the sheer numbers, if you do your 20 percent, you carry that out um, with the existing, and the, I know the governor has touted they, they want to get 6,000 additional beds ready for it. I mean, you would literally have to infect 30,000 people at that 20 percent hospitalization rate to, to meet 6,000 beds. So that's, I mean, some, that's a big number right now. And we're some of the estimates were it was going to be higher than that. But, but okay, so in your professional opinion, because we can ask you that. Um, it, you're looking at this trend line now where it's at, and it had, I know initially there was a lot of uh, doom and gloom about we were going to exponentially go up double every day and that kind of thing, and that really hasn't happened. And I get it, the social distance, a lot of efforts that are, that are taking place are keeping that in check. So looking like Jim said, we're 14 days in, is there some expectation that because that's kind of staying level and not, and I know it's going up, but it's not going up exponentially like was originally brought out in a lot of the media and all that. Is that a good sign in terms of? I think, I think it is a good sign, but the, I don't want to give a sense of false hope and say, I'm not oh, asking for that. I just, I, yeah, no, I'm not asking for that. Just to look at it as that is a good sign right I, now. I think this is a good sign that we're not seeing the doubling of numbers every four days or the tripling of numbers every four days. I mean, I think what has been done, especially with the closing of the schools, the closing of the universities, the closing of our, and the requiring for quarantine or isolation after out-of-state or out-of-country travel, has had a dramatic impact on this. But have we reached a point where we can comfortably say we've blunted this spike? I'm not there yet. I don't feel, I, I would feel that it would be an injustice to say that we have really stopped this progression. I think we still have a curve, and we won't know. But, Commissioner Moran, to your point about knowing where these patients have gone, I think that's a piece that public health should know. Mm -hmm. And we've asked questions like that, and we will continue to ask questions. You know, and I, I think one other thing that the, <coughs> and you could probably answer to this is the fact that stopping the spike or not stopping the spike there really is no way without a vaccine to stop COVID-19. So even if, for instance, these numbers leveled off or started to drop, if the public goes back to norm, what happens? I mean, will, will the summer kill this off? Will, will it go into a recession? Will it, I mean, you know, it, dormant? I mean, we begin next fall? Right. We don't know. That's right. We right. don't know. Right. That's what I'm saying. We just don't know. We know flu is seasonal. It starts warming up. Flu numbers go down. Flu virus can't tolerate heat. We certainly hope this COVID-19 
can't survive heat. Let me ask a question. In fact, I have several. First, we have a lot of warm states. Why is that information not being developed now in the warm states? Oh, unfortunately, if you look at New Orleans, New Orleans is massively spiking down there right now since the completion of Mardi Gras. I think it was, what, 500, almost 600 in some cases Mm. in New Orleans alone within the last 10 days to the point that Louisiana had to lock down. So I don't know how long we're going to need heat to stop this virus. But usually even the flu, once we start to get warm weather, it takes a good two, two and a half months to see that flu incidents start to descend down. I mean, that's the unfortunate thing about COVID-19. And if you look at it, it's sister viruses, so to say, MERS and SARS. Yeah, they tapered down when things started to warm up. We don't know if this one's going to follow that same path. And, and I know a question you're going to throw at me is Spanish flu. And when the f- Spanish flu started in the 1900s, it started off as a slow flu, that first event. It came roaring back that fall and became so deadly. So we don't know with these viruses. We don't know how this virus is going to mutate. But we are able to address the needs now. And thankfully, this is a virus that really presents mild to moderate symptomatology in the majority of your population. And where we have to be very diligent and alert is our senior housing, our senior locations, our nursing homes, our congregate housing, where people are grouped together is the highest risk of exponential spread. So that's why the social distancing and limiting access to these buildings was so important. And that's why taking temperatures of your employees when they come to work and ask them specific health-related questions will help prevent losing your workforce. That leads to my my next question, which is this, that uh, as this disease passes through the society, it builds a resistance in a bank of people. Is there now or is there work on serology tests that would be establish the immunity factor because that would tell you what first-line workers you could send back to work and also tell you the resistance of the general population. You know what I mean by serology, sir? If this, if this plays out like every other virus that's ever attacked mankind and any other disease, if you get the disease and recover, you have antibodies. Your body has a system. And those antibodies are in your plasm. And the, the, the theory is the majority of the people that get this now will not get it if it comes back in the fall. They will have immunity because their body has produced the antibodies to fight this virus. To what level, we don't know. It's like hepatitis B. A lot of us in healthcare were exposed to hepatitis B in blood products in surgery. That's why a vaccine was developed. Some of us didn't get the vaccine but still have antibodies, meaning that we got the virus, but our body 
through its immune system, was able to develop the antibodies to protect us from getting hepatitis B. We think that this will occur with this virus, that people who get it will get. That's why you get the flu vaccine. They guess as to what strain is going to be out there. And hopefully the vaccine prevents you, allows you to have antibodies and resist the vaccine, the virus that shows up that flu season. Well, hopefully with this COVID-19, those individuals that have had the symptomatology and the disease will develop the antibodies to protect them if this comes back. But the question I asked was somewhat different one, which was, is there testing or thought to be is testing, there testing right of, now? That, of that? We don't know right now. We, don't, we have not had enough patients to truly recover, and there is a lot of research going on. Those individuals nationwide who have recovered from this, they're looking at serology now and trying to type the type of antibody and the amount of resistance that occurs to this COVID-19. I mean, the sense of that being, of course, that if you'd had it and it run through a lot of the population, all your uh, paramedics and so on would be immune and they could be, I mean, that would give you a protective uh, force. Anyway. It would also take down your <coughs> pool of people that could transmit it. Because I'm assuming once you have the antibodies, Dr. C., you're not, you cannot then carry and transmit, right, typically? Jackson. If you have the antibodies, you're Jackson. usually not transmitted. Right. So, so. You, you take that percentage of population out of play next time it comes around. That's, 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 that's 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 right. That, that was it's not exponential that. anymore. Yeah. That's the herd immunity. Jim. Very good. Any other questions? Thank you, sir. How many um, recoveries have there been in Maryland? Do we know? Well, in Maryland specifically, I can look at some of the jurisdictions and know that probably 75 to 80 percent of these patients have already recovered and are out of the hospital when you look at the different jurisdictions. As we see, the majority of distri distribution of this is the Western Shore. Right. And More when you really areas. look at Montgomery County, as of today, had 107 cases confirmed. Prince George's County had 63. Baltimore County had 42. Baltimore City has 41. I think it's going to be interesting to see where we're seeing these spikes now and how much increase will occur over the next week to week and a half in these jurisdictions. Because the more populous areas are going to be an indicator anyway of your spike because obviously you've got closer contact, more people. in New York City, I guess, is a prime example of well, where that's taken place. Yeah. You know, people in Central Park, they show pictures of people in Central Park. Elba, in, Elba. A way, in a way, being a rural community with distance between us yeah. helps us. Absolutely. We socially distance every day. That's right. With the other problem being a bedroom community and, what, 50% of our population traveling that bridge to work? <laughs> Not now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, yeah. all, all government there. jobs that have been yeah. shut down. Traffic is way down right now. Yeah. I, hate, I hate to say this, but it would have been a good time to shut the yet. bridge down and finish the repair, folks. No. <laughs> no. Well, gentlemen, we've got an update on that. So. Thank you very much. Do you need any thank other you, Dr. questions? Dr. C., thank you very much. Thank you. Dr. C. Tall, thank you very much. We, I would ask for, uh, we have a few more department directors, and we have the superintendent of schools here to talk a little bit more about the uh, the response in schools. So I'd like Dr. Kane yeah. to come in next and give her a her update. Next up. Good evening. Good evening, Good evening. everyone. 
looks healthy in here. Yeah. And I just want to warn you, I'm coughing, but I'm no fever, and I've been coughing since January, so <laughs> it's, it's okay. All right, so you'd like to have an update on what's happening with the schools? I know my daughter would. She's been bugging me all day today. Oh, yeah. Am I going back to school, she said next week. I wish I had an answer for her. Oh, you don't? Okay. You know, we have really been working closely with Dr. Sam and the state superintendent and having conference calls uh, just about every other day. And there just is not an answer yet. So when we had our conference call on Friday, she thought, well, maybe Monday and Tuesday the governor would make an announcement about, you know, if this is going to continue, how long, and all of those things. He did not. Uh, so there's another press conference scheduled for tomorrow, and we're expecting that he may uh, give some direction with regard to how long schools will be closed. So that's or, his call. That's not the superintendent of education here. Right. He, he, he will likely make an executive order. She is there. Dr. Salmon certainly is there. Uh, just like she mentioned last time, she agrees with everything the governor, you know, had to offer and, and all those kinds of things. But, um, yeah, she won't get in front of him on that. So it'll, he will make an announcement and she'll come behind him on that. And that's a question that a lot of families have had, you know, with regard to academics for their kids. So we're feeding children, but what about the academics piece? And it's, a, you know, it, right now we just sort of are in a lump limbo because we don't know how long students will be out at this point, if students will come back in April or May or, or maybe not for the year. You know in Virginia they made their announcement on Monday that they would not be coming back right. for the rest of the school year. I don't know what our governor is going to say, but um, we're making plans. Across the state we, had, we submitted plans to MSDE to let them know what we will do in the event that there is an extended period of time and we will use online learning to the extent that we can, but we also have to do some hard copies for students who don't have access to Internet. And we're prepared to put some activities on buses. So as it stands right now, students are, we're focused on continuity of learning, not continuity of instruction because teachers are not instructing. There are lots of teachers online, and they are supporting students to the best of their ability. On the Friday, which was the student's last day, teachers were instructed <coughs> to send home as much as they could because we needed to you know, carry students through this two-week <coughs> period. Uh, that offered us some opportunity to do a little bit of planning in terms of what we might do. We did conduct a survey, which is continuing right now, and we do have a handful of educators that do not have access to Internet. Um, and we have some families that have responded so far. We've got about somewhere close to 650 families that responded since Saturday. We've got over 140 families that report that they have Internet access, but it's not reliable. We have about 35, 40 families who reported that they do not have access to Internet um, at all. So we've also taken, yeah, so we've also taken advantage of some offers that we've gotten emails about and, and done a little bit of research for ways that we might support families in getting um, internet with mobile hotspots. 
And so we have some information from Kajit. Um, there are smart spots from Atlantic Broadband. Um, Verizon has some hot spots. And the ranges are for anywhere on the high end from $324 a month plus about $15 per line for data to about $30 a month and, and just $40 uh, per line for data. And that one is Verizon. So, and Atlantic Broadband, actually, they're saying there would be free to families without internet access right now, um, and they would provide the cabling and the equipment for free for 60 days. So, you know, 60 days, if, if it turns out that, and I don't know, but if it turns out that we're out of school for the remainder of the year, it's just about right about there. Um, and, you know, that would support us uh, tremendously. So, so if Atlantic Broadband has enough equipment to hook those families up, or is there a limited supply of what they Based on the numbers that you just shared? I don't know that they did not. Now, we have one company that did say that they did not, so Verizon does not. Verizon is backlogged until April the 22nd. Atlantic Broadband did not say that they were um, backlogged. So I'm assuming that they have what, they, um, what we might need, because at this point we don't have um, 100 families that responded. But let me say this. Because, of course, the question becomes, if a family doesn't have access to Internet, how are they responding to the survey? And we made sure that it was mobile-friendly so they could respond on their phone. So we are, and sometimes that's a little bit slower, you know that. Um, so we're, we're conducting, you know, that survey to get that data right, right maybe, now. Maybe respond to a survey, but getting a streaming video <coughs> is another, another issue on a phone or something like that. Is, is a different story. I've had some families to reach out to me and say, okay, Dr. Kane, when you do get the Internet, if it's going to be online learning, please, you know, literally take it easy on the research and the downloading because, number one, my Internet's not reliable, and number two, if I have to download, it can literally take forever. So, you know, we're very cognizant of that. Mm. So I'm going to ask you the hard question. Is there I'm a never hard question? Ask you, I'm never going to ask you an easy one. You know that. <laughs> so, I, I, again, this is a question I'm getting and from a lot of people is if school is out, mm -hmm. how or does the school have the contingency plan for how kids will move on in terms of seniors you know, we know we got an incoming kindergarten class, so obviously we can't hold them back and, and do that. So how do, how do you envision that, or have you, has there been any talks about how that will actually? So however that happens is going to be driven by the state because Comar is, regulates that. And each individual data, and I know that's hard for parents to hear because parents, you know, I do get emails that say, okay, Prince George's County is doing this or Gunston is doing that. And, you know, we are, we are guided by Comar and MSDE directs us. And credits earned, how we distribute grades, uh, those kinds of things, graduation, that is going to come down from MSDE. So until we have some indication that we are not going to continue with school in our school buildings for the rest of the year, then those conversations are very much up in the air. I, I wish that I had an answer for our families that are just really hanging on that and waiting for that information, but there just is not a response at this point. 
So I, I'm hoping that we get some more uh, after Governor Hogan makes his decisions later this week. Yeah, I guess my concern is looking at it is that if, um, say, I, well, I guess how the Comar is written, is the Comar written very steadfast that a student must earn this number of credits to graduate high school, which I would think it probably is. It is. But if you have a situation where you have some seniors that are going to be two credits short, yeah. Are we going to bring them back into the system next year for a half a year, which is obviously going to be an added expense, which will be an economic issue that we'll all have to deal with from both our end and your end of bringing these students back for a half a year and obviously bumping up how many kids are in the senior class for at least the first half of the year. Is that probably, and I'm not, I'm not going to hold you to any of this, I'm just yeah. saying is that a pro a probable outcome for the way that may work out? I or? certainly hope not. Um, you know, some states are looking at scenarios where you look at do pass-fail. Some states are looking at scenarios where you do grade earned to the point that we left school. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different scenarios out there. Nobody's come up with anything. And what we're mostly concerned about is Maryland. And we've not done that in Maryland. Now, what we also have to consider is where students' credits where they have their credits, because we waive um, the requirement of 26 credits every year for certain students. So if they have their assessments and their service learning and they have the credits that they need to have in the core content areas, uh, we, we let them go with that if there is a plan for what they want to do if they need to leave early. Sometimes children want to go to work or they want to go in the military or, or, or start college early or something of that uh, nature. And if they've gotten all that they need for the state, then I let them go. Because our, we require 26 credits in Queen Anne's County. The state does not. So as long as they've met the credit count for the state, I will let them go if they have a plan. Fair enough. If the governor comes out and says two more weeks, three more weeks, but doesn't quite cancel the whole school year yet, is there something to be put into place starting Monday for the students, some curriculum for them, or some advice for the parents about, yeah. I mean, my wife came up with the whole curriculum for my kids already, so they're, they have fake yeah. school from, from 9 to 12, they're doing their homeschool, but um, I, not everybody has maybe the resources to pull stuff together, so is there some resources to start them on that? So I've sent parents two letters with uh, curriculum information in there. I've sent six letters, but two with curriculum information in there. And one is some guidelines, suggested activities from Queen Anne's County, and then another includes those plus some from MSDE. So families do have something to work from right now during these two weeks. We will be ready to start additional instruction, instruction mm -hmm. next week. Um, if we get the news that we won't be in school, which uh, everybody anticipates that we would likely get that. But what we don't know is how long. How long. Right. But so we're prepared to put activities on buses. Um, we have some buses, thanks to the county, appreciate it, that are helping us with meal delivery. And we'll put activities on those. So we'll get those activities out there to the children who don't have access to Internet. But children who do will be ready for those as well. And now on meal delivery, as you know, we've had some correspondence. There are some individuals in the community who are putting together meals and bringing them out to kids. Um, and I don't know if they're filling a gap. I don't know if there are some families that are maybe getting two deliveries that are coming to them. Um, but I know you've put into place a volunteer coordinator. Does it seem like you're able to sort of get better touch with these community groups to find out who are the students that are being um, provided 
with meals outside of the Board of Education's program to try to, if this goes long term, how do we make sure there's not a gap that's there? So if it goes long term, we'll continue to offer the meals that we've been offering. Uh, those are federal meals. MSDE also approves where we can have those uh, pickups and, and drop-offs. So right now we have nine sites. We're going to add an additional site on Friday in, um, in Graysonville. Um, we're looking at the veteran, um, the VFW in, uh, in Graysonville, and we're also looking at an additional spot um, stuck neck in um, between Churchill and Crumpton. So there, there are a couple of more areas. So by the time it's all said and done, by Monday, we'll, we'll have 11 sites um, for, for feeding. Now, my coordinator <coughs> that's working with the volunteer groups that are offering food, whether it's backpacks or another gentleman and a couple of different people in the community, they will do that. And they're not only giving food to children, but to the adults. So our food um, is offered to children, but the food that volunteers are given can go to any adult. We can give to any child. Um, we do three meals a day. Right now we've, we've given about 1,512, uh, over 1,500 bags, and each bag has three meals. So there's breakfast, there is lunch, there is dinner, and there's a snack. So there's been over about 4,500 meals that we've had an opportunity to. So you're to meeting all of your requirements for those meals? We ha yeah, we meet our requirements. But I think there was some misconception out there that, the, you know, why isn't the Board of Ed doing this? And Oh, no. Yeah. No, we meet our requirements for the meal, and we are not just offering those meals to students who would normally receive free or reduced-cost meals in school. We can offer those meals to any um, student where we have set up right now. So and if somebody's watching now and they haven't received your, your – I've got your email, so I know that you've been sending them out to the parents, but if somebody's watching right now and they have – a school-age kid and they're worried about food for their kid, is there a number that they can call so they can find out what distribution center is closest to them and arrange for that? Absolutely. And, well, on our website, there is um, right in the front, there's three tabs that talk about the COVID-19, and that center tab is COVID-19 resources. So they can click that tab and they can get some information. Uh, we'll continue to sort of flood every venue that we can. It's on our Facebook page. We've tweeted it out. It's on the website. We send information home with families. Um, we'll make sure that that continues to get out there. If you like, I can list the um, locations please right do. now. Yes. Great. Yes, please, yeah. uh, so we have meals for pickup at Crumpton Volunteer Fire Department uh, from 12 to 1, Graysonville Elementary School from 12 to 2, Kingston Apartments from 11.15 to about 11.45. That's in Chestertown. Pinckney Park, we're there from 12 to 1. Queen Anne's County High School from 12 to 2. Roundtop Park, we're there from 12 to 1. Sudlersville Middle School, we are there from 12 to 2. Templeville Community Church from 12 to 1. We uh, just started at Barclay at the uh, post office, so we'll be there from about 12 to 1. And just the two that I just mentioned, um, VFW in Graysonville, and then the location Stuckneck in Church Hill and Crumpton, that will start on, uh, those will start on Monday.
And they can pick up, that, that bag contains a lunch, dinner, breakfast. Yep, that bag contains lunch for that day, dinner for that day, a snack, and then breakfast for the next morning. Right. So when they come back, it's lunchtime again, so we'll continue to do that. And do they need to reach out to you in advance, or do they just show up? They just show up. There's absolutely no cost. Uh, there was a requirement for the children to be in the car, or, or walk up with the adult, and we just got approval today that parents don't need to have, or the adult does not need to have the child with them. So that just came out this I know that afternoon. that presented some problems in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So that does not, that's no longer a requirement, and we're going to move forward to request those. We did request approval for some locations in Kent Island. We were denied. We're going to go back again and see if we can get. Um, you know, if there's any way that we can get a location approved there. If, in fact, there is one approved in Ken Island, then it may be that it's for children who would normally receive those free or redu reduced cost meals. There are some restrictions that, um, you know, go along with it. They've loosened them. MSDE, I mean, has loosened a lot of the restrictions, but some for um, that Ken Island area, which we've been denied, have not been lifted. We're hoping that we can go back and, and work with them. But those students, if they can, if an adult, any adult can get to the Graysonville site, they still can get meals for their children at the Graysonville site or any of the locations that I just mentioned. That's just the closest Graysonville is. Who's doing the distribution? Who's, who's handing all these out? God bless Sodexo, our food uh, service company. They are cre they're making the meals and they're um, handing those meals out. We do have some volunteers that are, you know, side by side doing the backpacks and the backpacks provide food for the weekend. So there are community groups that are doing that and making donations and, and all types of things. So they're feeding everybody. Anybody who wants a meal can get a meal. So let me ask you, Dr. Kane, who, mm -hmm. who, is, who is standing in your way of getting a site on Ken Island? Is there anything we can do to MSDE, help? MSDE, no. And, and they're just following their own guidelines. So Because you don't have enough free and reduced meal correct. students on Ken Island? Correct. Is that, why they, okay. that is absolutely correct. All right. Yep. So if we wrote a letter saying that, as the commission saying that maybe they should relax that a little bit because we do have needs I there. would say go right ahead and do that. Um, I don't know that it's going to make a difference at this point, but I certainly would not, um, you know, turn down help. Can't hurt it, right? That's yeah. right. Okay. That's exactly right. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. King, because we've, we've been in contact over the last two weeks about getting the meals to students and you've been very responsive and I know that you're working hard to expand the location so if people think that there is a gap it, it's it's not because of a lack of intent and in trying you guys are, have been working hard and as you said your hands have been somewhat tied based on the state mandates and what you can and can't do and those are loosening and and I can tell you that even the sites that we do we started with three we now have nine by Monday we'll have eleven um, there are <coughs> meals left over mm -hmm. We're, we're not going away empty-handed. We still have meals, so anybody who would like to eat can eat, right? So that's a fact. So anybody who wants to come, they can certainly come. And, I, I mean, we've had some, you know, families that have been a little bit reticent, um, you know, and we definitely protect conf confidentiality. That's why we say anybody. So it doesn't matter if you have received a free or reduced cost meal in school or not. 
anybody at most of those locations. It may be different if we can get one at Kent Island, but um, anybody can eat. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. On, on a slightly different subject, um, we've lost a couple of weeks now. If the system got up and running later in the season still, is there some contemplation that you might maintain the regular schedule but that's run it into summer? Would that possibly happen? I, I don't know. It all is going to be determined by when we go back and what the directive is. I, there is not one single district in this state that has this number of days that they can make up. You know, initially there was talk about uh, giving up your spring break, but we really only have the two federal holidays, which is Friday and Monday, and that doesn't do it. We didn't use our three snow days, but we've been out for two weeks. So there's no making up that. So we're looking at whatever happens with the governor's announcement and Dr. Salmon's announcement. We've asked that some language be put in there about a waiver of the days. Yeah. So because that's important to people. Um, we don't know. We, I don't anticipate that we will be in school in July, but I don't know what's going to happen. This is yeah. an unprecedented situation. So We'll do whatever we're expected no, to do. I understand. I just didn't know what, if anything, was in discussion because, from my point of view, I don't hear. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Very good. Yeah, if you could take them back through, through July, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure it would for some my people. I would thank you. <laughs> yeah, some people would say, just can, you, can you come get them right now? I got a story today from a neighbor who uh, has a child that, um, a grandchild at Graysonville. One of the classmates has the hissing cockroaches um, that they sort of, pass around so they can go home and take care of them. This one poor child, bless his heart, he still got them, and they had babies. So, oh, wow. yeah. So we, we I was probably, wondering about that, the class hamster or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's being fed or Everything's whatever. being taken care of. We've got our buildings being monitored every day, and, um, you know, so far we're, we're just doing the best that we can to, to help families, number one, keep everybody fed, um, and number two, to continue to push out those resources. They're not learning assignments as parents are accustomed to, but they are resources to help to continue learning at home. So we'll, we'll continue on that track and, and uh, wait for our support from the governor and, and MSDE, which is coming any day now. Real quick, not to hold you over any longer, but um, on the uh, buildings themselves, are they being sanitized or anything over this the, the yeah, so, time off? Or is well, they, they were. We've run out of sanitizer. I mean, we've been, we've been cleaning everything, walls, floors, handle, every single surface we've been cleaning. So we've run out. There's a shortage, of course, as you know. Dacon is our provider. But, um, again, today, Mr. Pender, he contacted them. They're moving us up on the list. So our, our hope is that we'll have our supply next week so that we can continue to clean our buildings. We're about somewhere close to halfway done. So you anticipate we're going to be out another week? To two I weeks cannot ahead. imagine that they wouldn't. I have not been given any word to say anything <clears throat> other than the 27th. Gotcha. But as I listen to Dr. Ciatola and I'm on those conference calls with our county emergency um, agencies and everything, I can't imagine that students are ready to be in, you know, in schools. Well, or just the buildings themselves. You think about you've run out of product, and, and you're and, waiting for that product to come in, and you're halfway through. You're going to get all the rest of those schools done in the next five days? Not about to happen. Right. 
And we're not the only one in that situation. Sure. That's why the suppliers are having such a, an issue, because everybody needed something at the same time. Great. But we'll we continue that. to keep everybody updated, and thank you. Thank, thank you for having us. Thank you, Dr. Kane. All right. Thanks, Dr. Kane. All right. Keeping with our COVID-19 updates, we have uh, Kathy Willis for a brief update from our Office on Aging and Community Services. You feel like you're coming to court, don't you? Good evening. Yeah. I do. I'm kind of scared. Kathy? Uh, I will make this brief. Um, we have been uh, very active, of course, with our um, older adult population in Queen Anne's County. Uh, you know our senior centers closed down on March 12th. We have been reaching out to those individuals on a regular basis and added those folks who received a congregate meal, which is done in the senior center, um, we have added them to our home-delivered meals routes. So we've added approximately 20 people who were getting a meal during the day. Now they're getting it at home. So we're delivering about 62 meals per week that are frozen meals. It's been what we've always served as home-delivered meals program. They get two meals each day, three times a week. So um, a little over 300, 320 um, meals per week are going out to these folks. We are taking anybody that wants to be added on um, that meets the qualifications. Of course, similar to Dr. Kane, we have uh, federal guidelines to follow. We have worked with the Maryland Department of Aging to try to reduce those guidelines. We get about as far as the Board of Ed does on that. So um, we're, we're working with what we have. All of this is still funded. It's not additional cost to us. It's still funded under the federal and state programs, grant programs that we have because in lieu of having a congregate meal during the day, we're paying for it at home. The home-delivered meal is a little bit more expensive, but we can work that out. Um, so we'll continue to do that. Um, we're very fortunate that I've had some staff, because of the senior center closings, that we're actually helping the Board of Ed with two of their food sites at Crumpton and Pinckney Park. The folks manning that are actually my staff from Transit and um, the senior centers. And I went Friday to see that set up firsthand, um, how that went. And it was pretty nice, pretty easy, because we ended up putting all those heavy coolers and things on our lift and got it right up in the bus. So um, we're all working together, of course, very hard to see the community get what they need right now. We began um, the county information line, the regular information line, not the COVID line that goes into the EOC at the health department but the county information line where we have a number that anybody can call about county services in general, all county services, and we'll refer them to where they need to go, um, give them the information they need, and that's coming right out of the front desk at the Kramer Center. We have three staff alternating that will be able to answer those calls. And um, so that's, that's just started today. We only had a couple calls, so we'll see how that goes. But that assists all county services right now. Um, as far as transportation, we are running transportation currently as normal with, of course, a lot of restrictions on number of people, which the number has declined tremendously of people using transit right now, which is understandable. We're also doing self-checklists for those coming on the buses, and we're doing social distancing on the buses and keeping folks a little bit further from the driver, from each other, and in every way we can. We've stopped using the smaller vans, and we're sticking to the larger buses so we can accommodate that. 
we have been told by MTA that we can do as we please, basically, to get the, the demands met and, and do what we need to help out. Typically, I could not pull buses out and go help the Board of Ed, but they're allowing me to do that. Um, could the buses be used to deliver some of the Board of Ed food to, to families that can't get to the sites? That's a very loaded question, which we've been over before. We can't do, we can't do direct delivery. The Board of Ed can't do direct delivery. So we, we had questioned that before, too. Um, but you can? I do, I do for my meals through um, Older Americans Act. They have to, they don't go to homes, and perhaps Dr. Kane could have explained that a little better, but um, they don't actually go to homes. It has to be done from a site. The, the families have to pick it up. You know, we, we have a tally sheet. We have to count. The children have to be in the car. You know, you have to see how many are there to, to hand out the food. Um, so right now, transportation to their home is not an option. Could I do that? I could probably never meet the demand anyway if that were to open up. Um, we're still, without using the vans and with limiting what we have, we're also considering going to, if we can, eliminating temporarily a few of our fixed routes that are not functioning highly in any means or have no people on it. We're trying to convert them to a demand response um, schedule so that we can actually be more one-on-one -on -one with people and, and go out and do what used to be you had to call four or five days ahead of time to get an appointment because we were so packed that now we could do daily calls, just pick up and go back and forth, um, as opposed to a fixed route that's mandated to go certain spots all day. It, it just wastes it wastes the driver's time and the fuel and, and the maintenance, and we have a very, very aged fleet that if we can give it a break and do something more efficient right now, we will. Um, so we're, we're taking dialysis. We have about eight folks that go to dialysis. Um, we're taking folks to urgent medical appointments that they can't cancel or they haven't been able to reschedule, and also some folks shopping mostly right now. We have one individual that still uses the Annapolis route for work purposes to get across the bridge every day. We're also thinking it used to be about six or seven. Um, most of those folks are working from home now. So we're considering changing that route to a demand response so that we could just take that individual over and pick them up at the end of the day, but we could do other things um, in the middle of it instead of being um, confined by the route itself. So... It's very complicated, but we have we have a great regional um, manager at, at MTA who's been here before, um, who is very accommodating to us. We're very different than the city transportation systems where they have the metro buses, and, and when they say, when the governor says, halt, and you're going to only take emergency workers and people to work and to and from here and there, we don't have that here in Queen Anne's County. We're, we're a very different um, regional system all of the shores like that. So we have a little bit more flexibility in what we can offer. Um, so that's been going well. Um, you know, I have staff that are just cross-training doing whatever we're asking them to do, and they're, they're phenomenal. Um, I will tell you that everybody's coming to work. Um, Three-quarters of my staff probably don't have the ability to telework. We are hands-on business. Right. Um, so it makes it very difficult. Are they worried? Of course, they're extremely worried, and a lot of them are, you know, um, have families and other 
other kids and elders and everybody at home, but they're coming in and taking care of our folks. We took delivery of 500 shelf-stable meals today, which are box meals, basically. They give you three meals in each box, so it totals 1,500 meals. It's something that we do periodically, maybe once or twice a year, for the home-delivered meals program. Typically, we hand them out in the winter prior to big snowstorms. We didn't have a snowstorm, so we have COVID. Um, we are handing, we are setting up a schedule and going to be handing those out soon to all of the current recipients and expanding them to any of the senior center recipients and anybody else who, who meets the guidelines and wants to get them. Um, my community care administrator, Steve Scott, has made a, a very elaborate schedule and separated all of my home-delivered meals that typically came out of one site. We're, we're having the meals delivered to all three senior centers, spreading out our folks, not allowing more than one in a vehicle, and having smaller amounts delivered because our, our production has increased so much, um, trying to add routes and uh, get people out there. We're also doing the symptom checklist um, on every individual we go to. If we go in their home, um, we're doing it on, the, of course, the employees, but we're also calling each recipient prior to going and filling out the county form that Beverly's created to use for each individual that we interact with. We have a spreadsheet that tells every day who's been called. Before. You can't go in unless they've been called. Um, and it's working. It's going to work very well. They've, they've really stepped up and... Um, we're doing everything we possibly can for the security of our employees and our citizens. So um, I think that's about it. So. Well, let your employees know that we appreciate everything they're doing. We, we understand that this is unprecedented. We understand that this has got everybody a little bit on edge, but and we're glad to hear that you're rolling along and still taking care of the seniors and, and delivering the meals and, and uh, getting the job done. So thank you. Appreciate that. Yes. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Thank Kathy, you. very much. All right, we have one other update on the uh, the COVID-19 situation from uh, Heather Tonelli, our Economic Development Director, about the business opportunities out there. There's a lot of those that are being rolled out, so I'd ask her to come in, and then we will, uh, uh, after that, I want to get the tax set-off hearing with the towns uh, up next after that. And she has one other presentation that we will ask her to come back for. Okay. All right, Heather? Thank you for having me this evening. We've been super busy at the Economic Development and Tourism Office. Um, we're currently on lockdown. We have um, the visitor center closed. We're there. We're doing teleworking. We're kind of all around doing what we need to do. Um, as you know, most of our businesses were unable to plan for something like this. Um, the, the best planning, you, you can't really um, expect to be closed down at such short notice. Um, so there are some programs that are out there that I wanted to make sure that people are aware of. I mean, we've shot it out via Facebook, email, all of our partners, the chamber, everybody has. But I'm just afraid that we're not hitting everybody. So I thank you for giving me a few minutes to make sure that we get to um, outreach. If you go to choosequeenanns.com and look at the top of our website, you'll see a link that you can click on. And that link takes you to the Department of Commerce's uh, website and from there they update it if not daily if not hourly and it gives all of your resources on where to go if you need assistance um, the, one of the first things you'll see is yesterday the governor announced that they had a um, 
a loan and a grant program available. One of them is $75 million loan fund. You can get up to $50,000, no principal or interest for 12 months. Then you repay over 36 months for a 2% interest. Um, that could be used for working capital short-term needs. They also have a $50 million grant fund that they announced yesterday. Uh, you can get up to $10,000 in grant funding to cover operating costs. Um, there, of course, there are some intricacies that you need to be aware of, so please check out the website. Make sure that you um, qualify before you apply. Uh, recently, this week, it was announced that uh, Queen Anne's County is designated uh, to be able to apply. Businesses can apply for the SBA uh, Disaster Loan Program. That is also up and running. Please be patient because that is a national program, so everybody is applying to that. Sometimes it you know, locks out. It takes a little time, but be patient and apply. We have had businesses apply for that as well as the governor's program already. They're looking for whatever options they, they can um, utilize. Should a business have to lay off short-term, um, they can do a balk claim for all of their employees and send it to uh, labor or an individual can apply for unemployment insurance immediately, and I suggest they do it immediately if they need that assistance because, you know, you want to get in line and, and get that process rolling as soon as possible. Uh, we, in partnership with the Chamber, Canaris Development Foundation, some of our partners in Centerville, and, and anybody else that we were trying to talk to, created a business survey that we're asking all businesses to take a few minutes to fill out. It's four minutes tops to do it. I think there's 15 questions. And that information is going to help us to compile our, our resources and make sure we understand what do you really need, how have you been impacted, and, and to try to get as much of a voice as we can instead of, you know, just going out and making individual phone calls. It's a much broader reach, and we feel like that will be important. And we'll share those results as they come in. We're going to keep it open this week, maybe through next week, depending on how many um, people that we get to respond to that. <clears throat> on, on a good news basis, we do have a few manufacturers that have been contacted in order to ramp up production. They do something specific that is needed for COVID-19 uh, respirators and medical equipment. Um, RMI, which stands for Regional Medical Institute, just created a campaign, I believe it rolled out today, called Maryland Made to Save Lives Campaign. And you can find that information on our website as well. But you can go and register should you uh, produce a product that's needed for COVID-19 resources and make sure that they know that that's what you do through MEMA or, or whatever, that, that that's a great outreach. So um, I feel like that's important. Know that we're here. We're open. You can contact me at htonelli at qac.org or my cell phone is 443-988-8036. We're there to help. Um, last thing I wanted to say is I know there's a lot of questions about can we be open? Do we have to sh shut down? What can we do? What can't we do? And I understand um, the concern and confusion. The governor's office has been good about putting out guidance every day. There was a recent, the most recent one was put out today. It was called number five. But if you have questions, we're happy to help you um, navigate that issue. Or if we can't, we can forward that up higher to make sure that you can get the answer that you need, whether you should be open or not. Um, but it's ever-changing, so keep informed. Watch the uh, governor's press releases that he uh, does at least once a day, if not every other day. Um, and we're here to help.
Mr. Wells. A um, couple questions, Heather. One question directly for you that I would like to see if you can find out information on to help out with. And then the second one is a discussion we've already had that I want to present to the commissioners while we're on the economic development and the recovery. Um, so the question that I guess um, in listening to the governor's speech yesterday and looking at the businesses that will be able to take advantage of these loan and grant programs, mm -hmm. there's a large section of it that's left out, and that's your sole proprietors. Um, because they are not available, that they have no ability to get uh, unemployment relief, and they have no ability, or nor would they take out a loan that's going to put them further into debt, which is really their debt. And 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 the reason I bring them up is because they are a large. We have a lot of them here in Queen Anne's County, right. and they are a large part of our income tax base because a lot of them make between one hundred and fifty and two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year and they're seeing their income cut out from underneath of them right now, and there is no relief for them. So I guess my question is if you can take it up to MDOC so that they can circulate to the governor's office and find out how are we going to provide. And, and one of my suggestions is maybe that's something we can do locally to target our sole proprietorships where they are being left out that Queen Anne's County can help our sole proprietors maybe give them a little boost up, um, whether it's through a loan program or some, you know, we can give them some smaller grants because – a lot of times they don't need much to get by, but, it, you know, if they're shut down for a month, month and a half, that's significant. When you're making 150000 a year in your, in your small business like that, that's, you know, 25% of your sales are gone. So um, if you could look into that and maybe get something out and then we can share it at the next meeting so people have a place to go or Absolutely. we can discuss it. So. And, and I did look in, de in more detail at the Maryland programs and both the grant fund and the loan program require you to have employees. Right in order to be able to take advantage right. of this. And that's, so. that concerns me, like I said, because we do have a lot of sole proprietors here in the county. Um, second thing is a conversation we've had, and one that I want to present to commissioners tonight, um, and I think it's a prudent time to do it um, with the uh, institution of a lot of teleworking and things like that. We have several processes here in the county that I think we need to update, and I think this brings it to light <coughs> that this is a good time to do it. We, we, we have the software to do it. We have everything in place. It really is just going to take the effort to go get it done, and that is to create our, uh, take our permitting, our licensing, and all those aspects over at planning and zoning and get them into the modern age of being electronic and able to apply for permits online. That, you know, that releases the problem of having to have somebody behind that permitting desk every day. Contractors conti continue to work, continue to get their permitting done. We can expedite some of the planning and zoning processes. Like I said, we've bought the uh, multi-million dollar software to make this happen. We just have an institute, and I would like for us um, I've, we've talked to Megan. Um, it can be done, and I just think we need to put the push behind it to get it done. It's time to move into the 21st century for s just such occasions because, let's face it, when we get back and, and the economy has to get rolling, we can't have our planning and zoning and permitting because they're backed up through this time <coughs> be a hindrance to the businesses getting back on their feet and moving forward with expansion. So I would just ask for you guys to support Heather working with Megan and getting this and planning and zoning and getting this thing moving forward. So do we need to make a motion? I don't think so. As long as just, we have a consensus to yeah. move forward, we have the. Yeah, we you know, can move Todd that forward, obviously yeah. can, we'll can, that can push that through too. Is, is mm -hmm. we just really again we own the software, we have the technology, so to speak. We should utilize it. And in times like this, is where it really becomes, you know, uh, obvious that we should have something in place like that. Especially with exactly this issue. Uh, we had businesses calling that are, you know, are up for planning review or need to apply for a license that could then enable them to change their business model to stay open or be able to offer service that they don't offer right now to stay in business. 
and you know, to no fault of planning and zoning, they just can't. If they can't have a public meeting, they can't do it. Right. Um, so by having online processes, whatever those might be, um, would be helpful. And also to have a customer service aspect to it, where um, an individual can dial in and see where their permit is in the process, right. to see whose desk it's on, to see um, maybe they haven't, you know, given them all the information they need, and it's on the you know permit application side of it. But to be able to see that and, and you know, handle it that way instead of having to make a lot of calls. And it'll improve the process for planning and zoning um, as well for all departments if we can all see what's happening when and where. I think it'll be helpful. Great. You'll see cost savings out of that eventually, too. You've already I, got I just the think software. making the processes more efficient so that everybody knows what the processes mm -hmm. are. And, it's, and let's face it, most people would rather go online. I, I think we had somebody in, I can't remember who it was, they said they did a lot of their planning work online, um, like a lot of lawyers. And a lot of lawyers wouldn't, I th can't remember who was in here, but said that the, the legal firm wouldn't even touch it because they couldn't go to a website to look at the information they need to get from the county. So they just said, well, we're just not going to mess with it. Yeah, there was somebody in there saying that. So it's like, you know, we really should be providing that. We, you know, it's having to work around stuff, we should be making it easier on people, not harder. So, and we have a lot of, you know, like Heather said, we have projects right now that are shovel ready. That you know, once this passes, we've got to be ready to help those people move those projects forward because that's going to be more jobs in construction. That's going to be, you know, uh, and a couple of them are in the hospitality side, which we know that industry is going to be hit hard by this. So, anything we can do there to expedite that will be. A lot of people sitting at home right now looking at their houses thinking about some home improvements they're going to want to exactly. do when we get Absolutely. out of this. So that could help the trades. So I think there's some fear of what the housing market might do, uh, you know, after this. People may not want to move right away and all. So thank you. Yep, happy to help. All right. Thanks, Heather. Stand by. Well, that's all we had for the, the COVID-19 uh, situational update. So we have uh, <coughs> you want to move to the uh, tax offset hearing with the incorporated towns. We have a few of those town towns that are here that uh, have been patiently waiting. So do uh, you want to call them up, uh, Commissioner Moran? Well, I don't know who you, you want to just go down the line? You can. I mean, I, okay. I think. Okay, well, Barclay. Yeah. Is Barclay here? I don't believe Barclay's here. I know Centerville's here. Centerville. Okay, so Centerville's up. Church, uh, Barclay's not here. Centerville, Centerville, Centerville and Churchill. All right. Centerville and Churchill we have. We've got an order. So if Centerville's here, we'll, yep, there we go. Good evening. Good evening. Good place for me to sit. That's it. Commissioners, I'm Tim McCluskey. I'm the Council Vice President this year. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, this is my 11th time appearing before you for this uh, this hearing. Uh, obviously, we are under strange circumstances, so I will be as brief as I can be. Um, we are looking this year to uh, continue down the road of, of a fair differential. Uh, we did have a, um, a meeting with John Seaman last week, and we discussed a couple of points, in particular uh, the possibility of a greater percentage for economic development and tourism, uh, credit for running our own park system, uh, as well as an increase for police services that the town provides. Um, one other additional point that I did want to make is that when I first started coming here, we were talking about there was no differential. It was, it was basically a payment in lieu of taxes. Counties built a bunch of new buildings recently over the past several years. Uh, the tax-exempt county-owned buildings are over $113 million uh, in assessed value. If that was taxable, it would be about $460,000 in tax revenue. Um, so, you know, I think that we are uh, continuing on. Uh, in, in getting things to be a little bit more fair. Um, I, I would like to ask if you would consider at some point maybe a, uh, an additional payment in lieu of taxes, if that might be something you would consider. Um, but I do uh, appreciate you taking the time to do this this evening, and I am available anytime after the meeting if you want to have a, a conversation uh, as well. 
Anybody have any questions? No? We're, I mean, you want to, I guess we're not holding on to that same document you have, so my apologies. Uh, last year to this year, uh, with your meeting with Jonathan, uh, is, is, where does the number stand right now? Uh, you know, I, I don't have the full document, but what we, deci- what we discussed was possibly increasing, as I said, the tourism request, uh, parks, which was at zero, I believe, last year, and then increasing, um, uh, increasing the, uh, the, the police department. Okay. All right. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tim. Peace thanks, Tim. All right. Thanks very much. So if Churchill's as, is out there, come on in. Charlie. I saw Charlie. Oh, there. there he is, Mr. Rhodes. Good evening. Good evening. Commissioners, uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, appear before you to speak in regards to uh, the tax set-off or tax differential, as uh, we call it. As you know, uh, many of you know, I've been a town commissioner for 25 years up in Churchill, and we've been through this um, exercise every year. And uh, I must say it's gotten... um, much nicer and more streamlined in the last uh, four to six years uh, than it was early on. And um, I'm here to, um, and um, I'm also the uh, president of the Council of Governments, which represents the other uh, seven municipalities as well. And I see that they obviously couldn't make it for whatever reasons. And I'm here to speak um, in favor of the tax differential. I uh, met with Jonathan uh, last week, and we talked about the numbers. And uh, um, the um, uh, one one issue we had regarding air requests on the uh, health health department issue, and uh, we asked for 100 percent on that because we provide mosquito control in our town, and that was an issue that would came under our health department. And um, our budget is approximately, we're a small operation, our, our general fund bu- budget is approximately 350000 a year, and its tax rebate, as we get, is about 42000 which is approximately 12% of our budget. And uh, we're looking forward uh, to uh, your support to uh, continue those funds coming to Churchill, and if any way possible, maybe increase them. Uh, our request, I think, comes to uh, roughly 56195 and last year we received 42,130. So um, we've got, uh, Jonathan has a copy of our uh, budget this year. We we took on some additional projects, as I'm sure you know. Uh, one, in, as it relates to the uh, Churchill Volunteer Fire Department, we bought a, a lot there that, to uh, uh, enable them to place a large water tank there for their, their fire company. And um, we had the money in the budget, but we're going to have to do a uh, budget amendment to shift some funds around to cover that. And we also have a um, pretty large uh, road repair project we're going to undertake, and it's either going to be at the end of this fiscal year we have some money in or the beginning of next fiscal year. And I had a meet or I had a conversation today. We normally do that through uh, with the help of the uh, county road staff and their contractors. And um, so we're looking to, to expend a little more money le- next year than we have this year as well. Charlie, you guys did well on the HURs, right? MML got there. That bill got through that got you got, got the municipalities back up to pretty much 100 percent. We're not we're not near what we used to get. I think right last year we we recovered 25,000 a year. And I think there was a point in time where we were like 35,000. So I know they're trying to. Um, 
Um, there was a bill in there, I thought, to get you guys to 100, but the counties had a yeah. seed that we weren't going to go up. So. Right. They, there was an increase, but it didn't get us to where we were historically prior to the, uh, the cut. And I believe there was another bill this year, but due to the abbreviated session. Uh, right, that's the one I'm talking about. I don't, I don't think it went. Okay. I'm not sure. I, I haven't, I haven't heard. That. Yeah. Um, and then also, um, uh, you know, as you know, we uh, are working together cooperatively with you, you gentlemen, and uh, the uh, Department of uh, Queen Anne's County Department of Parks and Recreation to uh, purchase a little property there on the south end of town right next to the mill stream for a park um, we worked with mr chanley and it's my understanding those funds were appropriated and we just got to work out the logistics our intention is to buy the property and then get the reimbursement through program open space through the county and then it'll be our little park and then we'll we'll take care of the maintenance and uh, the uh, design and construction of it very so. good yeah all right one thing I would like to add, you know, as I stated earlier, I'm the chairman of the Council of Governments. The other towns are not here today, and I know they would appreciate all the support that you've given them in the past. And un under the circumstances uh, that we're all dealing with or faced with now, um, if any way possible, I know they'd like their request honored, but at the very least, if we ended up with a flat budget for the next year moving forward, we could understand that as well. If we can get that, would be deeply appreciated. No worries. And several towns did call and said they would not be attending right. the meeting tonight because okay. right. of COVID-19. Not a problem. And that Chief Rhodes would be speaking on their behalf. That's right. <laughs> Todd President. Right. Yeah, it's happened in the past. So, well, listen, you guys have a good evening. Be safe and stay healthy. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Charlie. Yeah, thank you. I think that's all we had as far as the incorporated towns. So if I could ask uh, Heather Tonelli, our economic development director, she has a proposal to expand the uh, enterprise zones for the county, if she could come back in and, and make that proposal. The um, information on that is if you turn to tab 6, item 2, on page 2 through 5. And I believe we have some graphics that we can uh, switch out here as well for for this presentation. <coughs> yeah. All right. Heather? So, is that? Either one of these or? Which, which graphic did you want up? Oh, that's fine. That's fine. That's okay. Fine. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. So, back in February when we were looking at proposed legislation that was going before our government, um, we saw that there were several bills put out to the House to eliminate enterprise zones. Um, and upon further investigation, you know, realizing, hey, ours just started, we had another 10 years, um, this is, could be our last opportunity to expand or change that enterprise zone. Um, looking a little bit further, we found out that the deadline is April 15th to get that in, and they're not going to extend it based on what's going on, and that's fine because we'll be able to get it done. Um, Jean Faby, who works with me, has did the original application for the Enterprise Zone and has the first draft of the expansion um, done, should you decide to move forward. Uh, so we were designated in 2017, and if you look to the map to the left, you can see the different colors, and uh, right in the middle where the purple is, that is where we're looking to expand to the Kent Narrows. So basically the Enterprise Zone runs from Kent Island 
through Graysonville, um, back when we were working on the original designation, uh, the Catanaros Development Foundation um, and, and the county was looking into the possibility of a TIF, and at that time they decided to exclude the Catanaros area outside of the enterprise zone, thinking that they would, you know, move forward with a possible TIF. Um, and they, you know, it's really hard to do both at the same time. Um, so after some changes with what Mears Point plans to do or Safe Harbor now, and the fact that Jamal's property um, is still there but hasn't really seen any movement for a while, we, we know that this is our last opportunity to move forward with the Enterprise Zone. Um, so I'm coming before you tonight to answer any questions that you may have, but also ask for approval to, to move forward with that. That would you know, include a public hearing and resolution, um, which if, if you move forward would take place on the 14th and we would submit the application on the 15th. So we're in a really tight um, time frame. If you look at what I submitted in the book, you will see so far since 2017, we've had $94 million in investment through projects that were certified through our enterprise zone alone. And that's, you know, new construction or expansion um, and 186 proposed jobs. So how, the, how it works is um, when a business comes to us that's in an enterprise zone that wants to build or expand, uh, Gene, who is our zone administrator, ex, um, approves them, and, and they give us information of what their estimated total budget will be for that um, expansion or, or build. And then any increase from what the value of the property is in the beginning to what it is in the end once they've made that improvement is then available for a property tax credit. And it's like, it starts at 80% for the first five years and then whittles down to zero within 10 years. So it's a great benefit. Um, there's also job tax credits available through the Enterprise Zone, and it's $1,000 per eligible employee that they then apply for on their Maryland tax return. So it's a great tool for us. I feel it has been beneficial. Um, we're just asking for an expansion. One thing I wanted to clarify is um, we've been working with Sam and our mapping department, who is excellent, and um, we submitted the maps to the Maryland Planning Department, and we do have an adjustment in the amount of acreage. So what I submitted to you had 200 and something acres. Once we submitted those maps, which we just got back end of last week um, from Maryland Department of Planning, it's now 198 acres because some of the first map include marshland and, and water. So once we got down to what's really buildable and what's really PFA, priority funding area, or, or your growth area, um, it's now whittled down to 198. So should you decide to, you know, do an action step, you want to make in, sure. In lieu of the, so it's 198, not 297. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I, I guess the original intention with the TIF yeah. was that we were going to have the two big projects there to support the TIF. And, you know, we've they designated bailed. the TIF area. We've already gone down that road. But at, at this point, we really need to take advantage of this before the state pulls the rug out on this thing because the TIF is not going to happen anytime soon. But this gives opportunities for any of the development or redevelopment down there to actually take place and help the business owners or whoever's going to do it uh, in the in the future. So, And I did reach out and uh, – through the Maryland Department of Commerce and ask, you know, do you have any areas that were um, TIF as well as Enterprise Zone? And um, I talked to Prince George's County, and they said they did have some areas, but they made the, the project choose between looking at a TIF 
or looking at an enterprise zone. So then they just wouldn't apply for the enterprise zone and then would work through a TIF. I mean, they're talking much larger projects there than we are here. And our TIF was looking at, you know, several combined projects in order to make it work financially. But that's how they made that work. And then I also talked to uh, Baltimore City. Um, they have an area that's an enterprise zone, and they also used TIF funding. But, again, it was... I just, I, Jim, Jim had, I, I, he has more information on because he was on the KNDF at that time, and I was just wondering, Jim, what was the problem with that? Because there was a reason we couldn't do both, and they told us what it was, and I can't remember what it was now. Jonathan, you need to. Because we, we all. Keep six feet, but pull up a chair and get near a mic, uh, because. We all originally wanted to go that route. Mm -hmm. and Well, I mean, it, I, I, that's what I want. I want some clarity on. Uh, we already have the district. For the TIF done, we already went yeah. through the legislation to get the approval. Yes. So, you know, what, what my understanding um, is now, moving forward, that TIF area that we designated, any new construction that increases the value, those additional taxes now will go into the, the TIF, to the TIF fund. Is that correct? Yes. That, the that's, TIF that's, account fund, whatever you want to call it. That's correct. So the increment of um, the assessable base increment would go into the TIF and, you know, potentially the enterprise fund is really acting on the, it is really acting on the increment as well. Correct. So there is potentially a conflict and there are jurisdictions who have done this. Um, but um, I've been working with the bond council to figure out a way where we could do both. Um, and so that we would have a couple choices. Um, we could, the, I think the enterprise fund, if you use the enterprise fund, you could potentially reduce some of the uh, TIF revenue. Or you, if you want to do both, you can do both, and the money would come out of the general fund. Uh, so there would be that reduction. But, I mean, the thing to understand is, first of all, the particular project, I mean, the fisherman's project, is only about 10% of the TIF, so it's not even a massive amount of money. So that one in particular, which is sort of the more immediate issue, is not is not a it's not going to have a huge impact on the TIF number well, one. Well, I, I, I guess the alarming thing that you, you, you said the word in there, the general fund, and the TIF never came out of the general fund. The TIF was on the increase in the in the values. Is that right. the, that's what funded right. the TIF? And my, and I, my question is. Can we go with? Can both go at the same time? And if they can, that's fine. Or do they do they have to choose between one or the other? Or do we need to just get rid of one? Well, if you if you wanted to do both, then you, you would have. You. You if you wanted to do a specific business, if you if yeah, well, if you were taking um, yes, an assessable base that was within the TIF, and it was also within the enterprise fund, mm -hmm. what I think would happen is the enterprise fund would get the credit and the TIF would not. Alternatively, you could, there is a way to get the TIF the money too, but it would reduce general fund revenue, which, again, I mean, you know, it's, to me it's a policy decision. It's not going to be a massive amount of money. I calculated in one year, in worst case, it could be like $60,000, but in most years, the actual increment is not even that much. It would be like eight or $10,000. And let me just say, I mean, I've certainly been a proponent of the TIF, but 
Commissioner Wilson is correct that, you know, the, the two of the three projects with, with the TIF are not really doing anything at the moment. Um, well, that doesn't mean they won't do something a year from now or two years or three years from now. I mean, we, right. set, we set this. And I guess where I'm having heartburn here is the, the Kent Narrows Development Foundation voted on and wanted the TIF. Right. And we went out and got the TIF. Okay. So it, it's set and it's in place. Right. Now, apparently, the Kent Narrows Development Foundation has now voted for the Enterprise Zone. Yeah. Is that correct? So now they want that. So my question is, if they can do both, okay. I mean, but if they can't, then let's choose one. And put one to bed and, and move on. I mean, that's all. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't want to take funds from the general fund. I mean, the general fund, the, the whole purpose of that TIF, which we struggled for years to get everybody to understand, is it doesn't touch the general fund. It only right. touches the increases on the value from projects being done, and that goes into a, its own little bank account to be used in the Kent Narrows for right. improvements. So, you know, I guess. So you. Yeah, if you do both simultaneously, they are both acting on the increment, and it would have an impact on general fund. If you don't do it that way, how does it have an impact on the general fund if, if it's on it's on increases and it's on improvements? It's not on because the, well, I understand that, but you're taking the, the increment now. That's that, that's my you're point. You're taking the increment so you sort of twice because the enterprise fund is giving a credit on the increment. But the increment is also supposed to be going into the TIF. So the only way to do that is to the TIF revenue would have to go into the base, which would which would then uh, have to be um, money that would come out of the general fund. Because it's not the TIF is only incremental revenue. So you would have to um, you, you'd have to shift from the increment to the base property tax for that okay. property. Which means it would, it, it would have otherwise gone to the general fund. In this case, Double dip you, and you're going to take both. Yeah, it's, okay. right. So, so uh, my question to Heather is you: Is what does the Kent Narrows Development Foundation want? Did he did he want the enterprise zone, and they're they're willing to give up the TIF? They want the enterprise zone, but they also want to look to see what specific projects could then be funded through the. See, I don't know that you have to give up the TIF completely. You're going to give up some oh. money. You're going to give up a well, X amount of revenue. Money, then what, what's the purpose of having? Well, it? you have. I mean, the, there's. Um, I mean, if those two projects get built and we don't take any of that money that, on the improvements to put into the TIF, then what's what's? Well, it, you're right. If those two other projects were proceeding and we were getting incremental revenue, what I was looking at perhaps was in the near term, where Fisherman's was the, the project that was going to benefit. You, you mean the hotel? The hotel. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, was a project that um, isn't even a major piece of the TIF. So it's not going to, it wouldn't hinder the TIF. Now, if all those other projects were going forward and the Enterprise Fund was acting in that case, then, yeah, the TIF would lose significant okay, revenue. So, all right, let me put it another way. <coughs> if we keep both, we, we enact this one and we keep the TIF also, and the hotel gets built, it's an improvement on the land, it's an it's a assessed value comes up, are you telling me that that would come from the general fund, or it would, nothing would go into the TIF and it would just go towards the enterprise zone? And right. Okay, it so. initially, unless you make a conscious decision, it would come out of the TIF. If you said, "Yeah, I want the TIF revenue too," you'd have to take it from the general fund. But I mean, again, thinking sort of more long term, I mean, the enterprise fund is, I'll say, only ten years. Um, the first five years are at 
uh, I guess the 80 percent, but then in year six through 10, it kind of decreases. There's also time. something that we haven't taken advantage of yet, that the state offers a 50 percent reimbursement on right. our the, the taxes that we're not getting in from the enterprise zone. So that's something that we haven't taken advantage of. Right. It's brand, it is know, in the law, new. too. So that's we could get reimbursed from the state for one half of what we're losing from the enterprise zone. <laughs> that's bizarre. That's got to be one of the new math things. Well, it is, but that's <laughs> to is. our benefit. I mean, it is. they're going to pay us. Because we're you know. taking the hit. The state's not by asking for the reimbursement. That helps reduce okay. our cost. All right. So we can put both in place. I guess the long and short answer to your can question, Jim, is we can do both right now, and then it, it comes down to the project-specific, right. right? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. And then we can, right, we can make other decisions later. Yeah. We need a motion? Yeah. Um, um, so I'll make a motion to proceed forward with. Uh, you want me to read it? Sure. Yeah. If you got one there, I don't have a paper. Uh, a mo I make um, a motion to schedule a public hearing for April 14, 2020, in consideration of an application to the Maryland Department of Commerce requesting an expansion to the Queen Anne's County Enterprise Zone to include 198 acres known as the Kent Narrows and Zoned Waterfront Village Center, WVC. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Abstain? So moved. 5-0. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, Heather. Right. Thank you. Is there anybody else out there? Did we clean That's the it. Out? Well, are we, we, are we doing our job? We have, <laughs> we have two, two things left. We have the uh, presentation of the FY 2021 administrator's proposed budget, and we also have our regular new business. So your preference for a little off script so do you want to just do the action items now we can out of the way. whatever your pleasure is all right we can uh, if you want to turn to tab number three <coughs> tab number three page one item one we have uh, a boards and commissions uh, last last meeting we um uh, the motion was uh, made incorrectly for the appointment of the broadband uh, boards and commissions, so we would ask for a uh, an adjustment on that. So I think there's a motion there for... Who made that motion? Ah, the same <laughs> guy who's going to read this new one. <laughs> to retract the broadband appointment motion made March 10, 2020, and agreed to reappoint Ed Cummins, D District 3, Allison Davis, District 2, Joyce Jones, District 1, and Scott Seaborn, uh, District 2, to a three-year term on the Broadband, Broadband Advisory Council to begin immediately at the end, March 31st, and to end March 31st, 2023. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? So moved. But, all right. Thank you, Commissioners. Item 2 on page 2 is Resolution 20-04, FY 2020 Bond <laughs> Resolution. Thank you. Can I get a motion on that, please? I move to adopt Resolution 20-04, which authorizes the sale of general obligation bonds in the maximum principal amount of $9,500,000. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? 
Okay, thank you, Commissioners. Item 3 on page 31 is the um, Federal Transit Administration and Maryland Transit Administration Certificates and Assurances. Uh, can I get a motion on that, please? I move to adopt the authorizing resolution number 3 for the Federal Transit Administration and Maryland Transit Administration Certifications and Assurances FY 2021 packet to certify the Queen Anne's County Department of Community Services Area Agency on Aging will operate the public transit system and the statewide specialized transportation <coughs> assistance program, SSTAP. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay. Thank you, Commissioners. Item 4 on page 82 is our Public Transportation Agency Safety Plan. Can I get a motion on that, please? I move that we approve the QAC County Ride Safety Plan to ensure compliance with Federal Transit Administration Public Transportation Agency Safety Plan. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay, Commissioners, thank you. Moving right along, item number five on page 91 is a Corsica River dredging project, additional Maryland DNR grant funding from uh, for the Corsica River dredging. Can I get a motion on that, please? I move the Director of Parks and Rec be authorized to sign and execute MD Department of Natural Resources Waterway Improvement Fund grant agreement to MDG 1502 and subsequent grant applications and agreements. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion on this item? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Okay. Thank you, Commissioners. Uh, item 6 on page 101, we were going to table, that. table that one. Item 7 on page 103 is Budget Amendment CC27, Preventative Park Maintenance, and this is to recognize POS grant money uh, for uh, paving of our Cross Island Trail. I make a motion to approve CC-27. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. All right. Thank you, Commissioners. Item number 8, page 104, is Budget Amendment CC28 for our new Animal Services Division in the I'm, county. I move to approve Budget Amendment CC28. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Absolutely. So... Where's Jonathan? Jonathan, come on in here. He might as well just stay in here. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's the rest yeah of he can he's stay. He's taking yeah. the distance a little too far. Budget Amendment CC28, Animal CC28, Services. Just, if, okay. if you could break this down in, in layman's terms uh, of what exactly you, you, you took the income tax revenue surplus. Look at this. I'm not looking at it. Oh, you um, don't have it? But it, um, we took, yeah, well, we took the um, remaining um, amount of payment that we would have made to the Animal Welfare right. League, and we shifted that over, and that took care of, um, let's see, 167500 and then we took 81400 because we needed additional money, 
and that we declared additional income tax. So why do, I mean, I guess I'm trying to understand why do we need additional money if we have the 167.5? Well. And that's what they were running on. They were with the Animal Welfare League, but we calculated the salaries and we worked with um, Ramon about what the budget would look like. It's very, I would say, sort of imprecise at this point, quite frankly. And we came up with this budget that did, it was a little higher than what AWL was paying, but it doesn't really surprise me. We made all these people, you know, county contractual employees, and I suspect that that cost more than what they were paying them, including benefits. So the, it, it will cost, I think. Contractual, will, contractual employees don't have benefits. They do, they have, um, well, they have retirement. Right. I mean, I guess I, I, what, I'm, what I'm concerned about is this is $249,000 for basically April, May, and June, three months. Well, March, it's really four months. Okay, so four months. we did it. So if we triple that out, we're over $750,000, where before we were paying 500000 Well, when I calculated next year the budget for FY21 was a little over 700000 what I calculated for what seven forty eight what the um, what the what I calculated for AWL because they've gone up every year was a little over six hundred thousand. It was more expensive, but we also get some revenue with this because there's revenue that the county used to get, which like for licenses, animal licenses, and fees for adoptions, which you know AWL was getting and now we'll get. So that'll make up some of it. So I mean, so that that goes right into the general fund. That doesn't yeah. stay with AWL. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's any, right. Any idea, Jonathan, what that, what the licenses and income? I think it will be about fifty thousand dollars. Right. So, I mean, we get pretty close, but you know, we have to get some experience with this to know. It's probably. I didn't want to come back for another budget amendment. We're going to have to see what happens between now and June as to whether or not they're going to spend all this money. It's a little bit. We, I don't think we know exactly what they're going to spend. So, well, just I tell you what, during the budget cycle for AWL, I, I would like to see the last three years. So, I'd like to see twenty nineteen and eighteen. <coughs> we get, I mean, this thing has. I every, can, sh- yeah. I mean, I can show you what we gave them. Correct. That's not their full budget, though. I understand. I understand. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I totally okay. Get it, so, okay. All okay. Right. Any other discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor of CC28, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay. Thank you, commissioners. Item number nine on page 105 is budget amendment CC29. This is to recognize the sheriff's office port security grant. Can I get a motion on that, please? Motion to adopt CC29. Second. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Bill? Uh, aye. I'm just I'm trying to see Chris? where these. Aye. Steve? This is. Aye? Okay. Five out. <laughs> that got a little weird. <laughs> Went quiet. <laughs> yeah, it did. Well, I just, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. Um, you got a grant. We got to approve the grant coming it, in. It's a grant. I, I, I know that it's part. Um, what, what he's going to do with the money? That's it's what. typically for homeland security type stuff. They bought the boat, you know, initially with this, and it's for equipment for the boat and other things, activities <coughs> that they, they they can use for the uh, homeland security activity. 
Like two SUVs. That wouldn't be two SUVs. It's equipment. 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 Yeah. <laughs> okay, we had two desk items, commissioners. Uh, item number 10 on your desk um, uh, is a broadband feasibility study MOU extension, and this is a, an extension for the MOU that for the study we're doing now for approximately 30 days. Can I get a motion to... Uh, so do we approve the request for signature on the broadband feasibility study MOU extension? Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? And CDBG has already approved the grant being extended that long, so we don't get no. Okay. Yep. yep. As long as there's no fallbacks. <laughs> Any other discussion? Alrighty. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay. And our last action item, desk item number 11, it is a letter of support to uh, Secretary of Natural Resources, Jeannie Hathaway, uh, Hathaway Rico, to support uh, Delmarva Fisheries um, that we submitted. So, Yeah, they reached out the other day and asked if we would be, uh, Kent has written a letter of support and Talbot has. Um, this is to allow the watermen to continue to work <coughs> to make them eligible for any uh, funding uh, in the downtime. If they're if they continue to be forced not to be able to sell to the marketplace. They want to be able to actually sell off the dock. More or less, so. Motion to sign the letter of support. Second. I have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Okay, commissioners, thank you. Now for the big show. We'll do it at the end of your... Okay. All right, commissioners, we can do... Um, we were at Ready to keep on going? You want to do the budget presentation next? Uh, do we have to do anything with this uh, the tax sale? Oh, you want to? We can do that now, I suppose. Jonathan's here if you then. want. Yeah. Or we could do it at the uh, as part of the budget. But this um, yeah, action item it doesn't have thirteen. Enough. This is tax sale options. We can discuss that now. Jonathan, you want to? Sure. Um, the reason that is an issue is okay. Our tax sale by law is scheduled for May the 19th, but there are certain requirements of the law in terms of advertising and mailing the final bills, which would need to be mailed next week. So in order to comply with our May the 19th tax sale, um, we'd have to ma mail final notice um, next week to about, it, right now it's probably it's about 1,600 people who are owing on either taxes or utility bills. Um, so, I mean, part of the issue is, uh, the issue is, okay, I mean, if you just think about it in terms of are we going to hold it, it, you know, it's, it, if the current, um, criteria were in place, you couldn't have it because there's like 40, it's, could be 30 people sitting in here. So the issue is kind of really whether we, we can go ahead and cancel it later, um, or we could postpone it under the terms of the governor's executive order, which says that, I mean, we can, we can postpone it until within, then hold it within 30 days after the termination of the governor's executive order. So it's a matter of saying, well, if we're going to proceed, we got to mail the letters next week. Now, if we then cancel it, it also means we would have charged these people for advertisement that we'd have to refund to them if we didn't advertise it because we didn't hold it. So the question is, whether we think, you know, May the 19th is reasonably, are we going to be able to hold it? Um, do we need to decide that now? Um, can we, or can we wait, you know, and under, and just say, 
let's postpone it until the executive order is done. Um, What's the easiest uh, right now? Just to postpone it to the executive order is done, or to cancel yeah, it well, I would say if I that? if you could, I mean, in my view, we've already had people calling mm -hmm. who said, "Are you going to do this?" Because you know we're getting our taxes delayed. Right. Several people have called and said, "I'm out of work." You know, so this is just my opinion. I'm not sure we should be mailing out. To 1,600 people tax notices. Now, I realize they're supposed to have paid their taxes, but I'm not sure in this environment that that's what you want to have people looking at because they're going well, to they're going to call is, you. But can we do this later or not? Yeah, we can do it later. If can we, we do it in July? Yes. Okay, so how do you postpone it until further notice? We have to, uh, Patrick would have to write a letter to the governor's office under the terms of the executive order. Okay. So, so we just need a motion to say that 30 days after the executive order is lifted so that he can proceed with what he wants, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I make a motion yes. that we hold the tax sale advertisement for 30 days after the governor's executive order is lifted. Right. Second. We have a motion and a second. Any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? So moved. Thank you, Jonathan. Mm -hmm. Got that, Margie? <laughs> all righty. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Now let's go on to the what we're all here for. <coughs> I thought we were all here for Dr. C. Put it we're on. all here for this. <laughs> I will say that this budget was prepared uh, about, yeah, it seems like a long time ago. So some of the conditions have changed. I know Jonathan has made some uh, adjustments this past weekend. So there is another on your desk uh, updated version of that and uh, obviously we're in a very um, dynamic mode with with uh, with our budgeting so um, we'll go through the highlights on this you want to take a five-minute recess yeah do you mind? sounds good five-minute recess he started this budget back in December. Um, departments, you know, submitted uh, their budget request. Todd and I met with all of them, and we put together a budget uh, based on what we thought, you know, was happening and sort of made sense until about two weeks ago. <laughs> um, and so what I'll say is, I mean, on this first slide, it just says that... Um, our local economy was very strong, and I've told people that I thought until this happened, this would have been probably the strongest growth, highest growth budget that we've seen since the recession. As our income tax has continued growing, our wage growth has been high. Um, I then say it's too early to be able to forecast the impact of the current slowdown. So I don't think we know, you know, there's no way to know what those numbers are going to do. We know that I'm sure, you know, we've talked about this. The income tax is, is going to go down. Um, there are some other smaller, you know, the hotel tax, missions and amusement are all going to go down. Um, I've tried to work with some other entities in the state to figure out exactly when this hit would come because the income tax distributions are a little bit um, unequal and not all that predictable. So I think it's possible, though, that we could get some reductions even in FY20 in, in let's say, April, May, June timeframe. We could get some reduction, but I think most of the reductions in income tax 
would be in um, next year in FY21. And um, may also, you know, fall into FY22. The thing about the property tax, which is actually our largest source of revenue, is that we already know it. That's not going to be impacted in terms of FY21 um, because we already know what that is because the assessments have already been done. Unless, I guess, as people point out, people don't pay their taxes, which would be a whole separate issue. But um, we, we are in a strong position. We have a rainy day fund of $11 million, revenue stabilization fund of $6 million. So to the extent that we, you know, have shortfalls, we have ways to, you know, plug that gap, or I guess I would argue temporarily because, you know, at some point in time we're going to have a new revenue base and we have to have a balanced budget. So what I say is we must be prepared to act quickly and decisively to take the difficult but necessary actions to bring our operating budget into balance if that need arises. So um, this is what we put into the budget. Um, the um, Okay. So the budget that was put together had $4.7 million in growth, or 3.2%. Um, um, income tax projected to grow by 5%. And again, this was as of two weeks ago. Property tax revenue grow by 2%. Tax rates remain the same. It funds the Board of Education at maintenance of effort, which is an increase of $1.5 million. Um, now, I will say this. In terms of that $4.7 million, $3 million of that in this budget is put in the contingency account. Um, so it's basically discretionary. You know, in probably normal times, it would have been put, it would have been used for things like, you know, calorie, county salary, employee salary increases. It would have been used for um, enhancements that we have departments request every year. So, but the point is, right now, there's $3 million sitting there that's undesignated and, frankly, doesn't need to be spent if we need to make cuts in the budget. Um, so, so Jonathan, what you're saying now is the raw numbers we're looking at now include no employee salary raises, correct? That's correct, unless you take the money out of contingency. And no new positions. That is all in the contingency account. Okay. So, so, so when, when Todd, like in the past, some of those positions were put into the budget and then yes. others were left out as enhancements. So what you're saying is right. we have a flat zero new right. hires in this budget as we're looking at it. That's okay. correct. Okay. And just wanted to make sure because sometimes I can say we. Contingency money. Well, here, let me just. This is. I won't go through. <clears throat> excuse me. All the details. But um, that's the revenue budget, income tax, property tax. There's the expenses by function. There's our tax rate, which is third from the uh, third lowest in the state. Now, this is where you see um, the increases in the revenues and expenditures that we um, that we uh, you know when we put this budget together. So, uh, let me get so I can look at this a little better. Um, okay, so. Um, of the $4.6 million, you could argue that between the contingency and the Board of Education, that's $4.5 million right there. So the Board of Ed is $1.5 million, which is currently, under current law, 
is required, and then the contingency for $3 million would have been used for salaries and additional positions and still could be if we, you know, were to determine that we really were going to have $4.6 million in budget growth. That's what it was intended to be. But we took it out and put it there in light of the current situation, which means really in terms of if you look at the department budgets, there are no salary increases in there and no additional positions. Jonathan, is, is there, have you heard any talk of with the present situation with the schools that if they shut down, say, to the end of the year, there's obviously some cost savings on salaries that won't be paid out. Is there any, is there any talk or that you've heard? I haven't heard any. I was just curious that that money will have to be banked and put to help offset any increases for Kerwin for next year because obviously – you know, we put a million and a half in, but they've got a two million sitting in the bank. It doesn't, you know, that doesn't make much sense for us to right. put that in when we're going to have to make our own cuts internally. If there's money there, are they going to provide us with what that number is to kind of offset next year's budget? If they don't go back, obviously. Well, if they don't spend it, it's going to be part of their fund <coughs> balance, and so we're going to see it. I mean, so it, it would it would be money that was available. They have to declare their fund balance, but if we said, well, we'd have to be exempted from the maintenance of effort. But we won't see that pre-budget, though, right? No, we won't see it then. We won't see it until after June. So um, we won't know what that number is. But ultimately, they would still have the money. But um, So that's kind of what the budget is made up of. There's a few other increases there for technology, things like that. Now, I will show you this. These are the enhancements that were um, requested. Or no, actually, it's not what was requested. What was requested was about $2 million. And um, between the county administrator and I, we kind of shaved that back to 742000 which, again, is in contingency. None of these positions are, even at the, at the 742 level, None of these could be hired before January 1. So we specifically made a point of saying we're not going to hire any of these until we know what's happening. So they're only funded at most for half a year. And you can see what's in there, um, you know, a variety of um, requests that we have, one of which I would say, you know, the Economic Development Incentive Fund, that's not a position, of course, that's to uh, replenish the fund because there's been a declining balance, of course, there. So they requested 250000 This includes 125000 which would get them up to about, I think, about 300000 available <clears throat> for next year for use by that fund. Um, there are some positions in the sheriff that I know we discussed with the sheriff that the judge, um, Judge Knight, um, requested that the sheriff do. Um, there's a f and there's a few other positions here that I guess I'd say were senior. The chief aging and transportation, which is a position that I know community services has been looking for for quite some time. So um, most of the requests, the highest level of requests came from emergency services. The two main ones here are the conversion of contractual positions to full-time, which we also did in the current year, but this would complete the conversion of their, I think it would complete it, their contractuals to full-time, which is advantageous to them. 
Um, and then they asked for three new dispatchers in communications. So, um, so if we set aside the enhancements, we're going up the maintenance of effort, basically, right? I mean, that, that would be the total budget increase. So we could adopt this budget sans any enhancements, watch what <coughs> happens as the, as the revenue adjusts and make budget amendments throughout the year if we wanted to institute some of these enhancements down the line, correct? Yeah, and I'd say <clears throat> enhancements plus any salary improvements. But I'm saying even if we held the line on salary improvements and everything right now, going into this with kind of uncertain as to what the revenue hit's going to be, and as we go through the year and we see where it starts to shake out, I mean, if this goes, you know, we have to craft this budget to be ready by May to go out the door. We may not even be out of this thing by May by some of the reports. So we're going to be crafting a budget that, that would, to me, would be irresponsible because we shouldn't increase spending at all right now because we don't know where we're going to be six, eight months from now. We can easily, and I know it's a pain on your end, but we could easily do budget amendments as we see if the revenue does adjust, if it comes back quickly, if it's going to be more long-term uh, a downturn, that we should make it more of a dynamic budget than we do, uh, you know, like we typically do. We just put it out there and take it to the budget hearings. I'd rather see a truly flat budget this year, in my opinion, going forward. I just think, I just think it'll be more responsible with the current situation, but that's just my opinion on it. Okay. My thought being this is, I think, so provisional, given the uncertainty of our circumstances right now, that I'd approve almost anything on the basis of the fact we're going to know a lot more when we get to the work sessions. So I don't really take set a lot of store by what we're doing here because it's just it's a recommendation. And the reason we push back our work sessions is because we're going to have, we hope, some more clarity then, and we may not, but... We're we, saying the same thing. <laughs> we'll, we'll be adapting the circumstances, but this is not, to me, something to scuffle over. No, I'm not scuffling. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, looking at it. Yeah. I think we're all on the same page on that. We're just saying it different yeah. ways. So... Good work on the budget, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we'll just start Next over. Factor in a it was much better two weeks ago than it was. I bet it was. Yeah. And then this Everything was much better two weeks yeah, ago, yeah. let's face it. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so we'll just talk briefly about the capital budget. Um, this capital budget, which is $41 million, and I would say, I mean, the capital budget is less susceptible to what's going on in the economy. There isn't really, there's very little general fund money. There's a little bit of pay go in here, but not much. And we cut about $8 million to get to this level. So meaning departments requested about $8 million more than is in here. We got this to a level that we thought was affordable, mainly in terms of bonds, um, in light of what we've kind of told the rating agencies we're going to be doing for the next few years. Now, FY21 is actually a pretty strong year in terms of uh, bonds, we had projected spending about close to $20 million in bonds, basically because, um, you know, there's several big projects. The Kent Island Library is in here. Of course, the detention center is in here. Um, this computer-aided dispatch and DES, things like that. So 
Todd, did you find out, uh, we we're trying to find out about the library, and hopefully in light of the circumstances that we're not going to be held to that, have to have a shovel in the ground uh, three months from now or before the end of the year in order to maintain the money. So I'm, I'm assuming the state's going to be a little more flexible on that if we are pushed back. Yeah, we're, we're evaluating that now. I hope they will be a little more flexible. We were supposed to break ground this fiscal year uh, as a result of the $1 million in funding we got last year. For the library, we got the additional 2.5 in the governor's budget this year, so we have three and a half million dollars in grant funding for the library. So we're we're going to continue to work with that and see if we can get some relief and some some additional time to start to make a decision on that project. But I don't I don't have a definitive answer yet, but we are working on that. And detention on that project, we we do have flexibility to delay that. Uh, you said we got five a, years basically for a period of several years. Yeah, probably five years. Yep. I, I do not know a point of greater uncertainty because you can envision a circumstance in which we wouldn't want to be incurring any extra expense in this block of time because of revenue shortfall. And equally, I can envision circumstances in which the federal government, as they did during the Depression or other times, wanted the counties to go do stuff and help you do it. So, I mean, I think everything's in the in the air right now what we did um, I would just say in terms of the Board of Education who I guess as you know requested 12 million dollars capital projects what's in here is 7 million um, the the biggest project is the um, Ken Island High School roof replacement which was which was part of what we agreed or had earlier you know um, applied to the state so this is there's our share, and then there's a state share for that. This 2.4 million is the biggest part of that. Um, but anyway, that's what. And there's several other projects here that are part of that match to the state. But other than that, we just kind of put together something that was less than 12 million dollars. Are those projects? Are they being calculated with the new law in effect um, for the uh, capital projects? Oh. Uh, no, because, no, because they the were. the new law, they go through MSTA, Maryland Stadium Authority, and then we get it's a true 50 50. We're not 65 35 like we've been in the past. See, these projects were approved before the session. Yeah, but I think, but, but they probably, they probably did take that into account. I guess. I'm not, I'm not positive. I'm just curious. I don't think they're 50-50. I doubt they put them in. Oh, I don't think they're 50-50 either. But they, I, they should be, though. If they go through I think they authority, still they exclude, when we've talked to the board, it seems to me they still exclude certain costs that are eligible for the 50-50. But my understanding is the soft costs go in it if it goes through a stadium authority bonding. Isn't that right, Jim? Isn't that what they told us when we were listening to that at MAKO? That when if it goes through the MSA or MST, whatever, their compromise side, then it'll be a true 50-50 match because the soft cost will get uh, split, right? And I have no idea. I could have swore that's the way it was explained. You might be right. I, I, I don't recall that. So, Because, I mean, that's a big savings for us. Yeah. Traditionally, we've been 65-35. We picked up 65, and the, the state's picked up right. 35. So it's a couple million dollars on 12 million. Um, okay, so we'll have to look into that, but... Um course it is a six-year program but I'm not really gonna get into all that at the moment but we did project out through FY 26 including bond sales um, 
through, uh, you know, throughout that period, but making the bond sales conform to what our long-range plan has been so that we stay within our debt limits. So um, this is kind of what's going forward, and I think the county administrator and I are going to suggest, um, you know, in light of the circumstances, maybe sort of recrafting the schedule a little bit. Um, of course, the budget releases today, but the work sessions, um, you know, normally in those work sessions, you sit down and meet every agency comes in one at a time and meets with you. I think we felt like that's not necessarily the best use of your time, except for maybe the major departments. But most of the, this budget is mostly, is actually mostly flat, except for, you know, enhancements and salary improvements. So I don't know that it is going to be worth, this is just me talking, whether it would be the best use of your time to sit down and meet with every department. What Todd and I had talked about was maybe start off at the beginning, which is really next Tuesday, and maybe have a sort of more of a discussion of what the big picture looks like before you sit down with departments, and then perhaps you could sit down with the major departments, uh, you know, the DES, the ones that had more of the issues, public works, uh, the sheriff, whatever. Of course, Board of Education as well. Yeah, right. And um, you could also then focus more of your time on some of the other things like the tax differential that you heard about tonight. We could talk about that. And, and, and also, you know, the local grants, the nonprofits who have submitted requests again this year, of course. So we were going to try to kind of reconfigure that schedule because there are four work sessions scheduled before you release your budget. And um, when I looked at the schedule, I'm just not sure that it is – I don't really think there are that many issues in most of those departments because their budgets are flat. So I think you could spend your time better talking about sort of more of the big picture, you know, what we do think the revenues might look like and, um, you know, what's going to be affordable in the long run. So, I mean, I'm all right, but I don't know where everybody else is, but if we compressed them all into one week, three nights, back-to-back -back nights or something like that, if we had to. I mean, I, or, or we can leave the we can leave the dates the same and just, you know, or pick and choose. I mean, right now we're set up to have – every single department agency come in on those dates. I mean, the major ones come in on the 31st. The first one is always the Board of Ed, DES, right? Okay. I don't it's think not so. The 31st. Not this year, Okay, because no. typically they're always the no. first night, so. Yeah, they're not this year. No. That's not the way it's laid out. I don't have the schedule here in front of me, but um, in fact, it was, I think it was most a lot of smaller ones on the 31st this time around, how, how it's shaked out. But it's really up to the to the commissioners how you want to proceed with the uh, you know, the work sessions. We can certainly just leave it like it is and go with everybody or, you know, revise that a bit for um, the Why don't you bump it out a month? Instead of meeting on March 31st, April, why don't we meet April and May and see where we sit? Because in a month, if it's still going on in a month, we're going to know. Yeah. If it's <laughs> over in two weeks, we're going to know. But, I mean, you know, it's not going to be that. It's not going to be if in a month from now, this is still going on. The bottom line is the same budget we had last year, no exceptions, and we're done. If in a month from now we've been out of this for two weeks, we have a better idea of what our revenues might be. Right. I mean, because I mean, like you said, I don't think it's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. You know, I think that we okay. could probably do that in, in uh, the end of April, beginning of May, and uh, still get to where you want to be. You'd have to change the public hearings. To yes. later in May, 
but uh, and depending on if we're still under this, this, yeah, this, I mean, yeah, sure, no, no problem. The only, I mean, we're required to adopt it by the end of June, but Correct. yeah, just, I mean, it's going to be a certainly done it later. We do the public hearings. I, well, yeah, that's just it. We don't know. We, the public hearings, public we, typically, we typically have them at the two schools, Kent Island, Sellersville, and then the tax office. Uh, and now they're scheduled for May 4th, 5th, and, that, and, and that's 6th, the other Monday, thing is, if you look, they're canceling larger, larger things out to the 15th of May right now, so our public hearings probably couldn't take place in a live audience on the 4th, 5th, and 6th, based on the information. That's well, we wouldn't, right because that's when we would be having our... Our work sessions. Right, but I'm, you know what yeah. I'm saying? I'm saying right yeah. now, based on all the projections, you're not even going to be able to get that many people together then. So well, we can we can do the you can craft a new schedule. We can craft a new schedule and um, let you look at that. And yeah. 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 So, like I said, that'll give us, that buys us an additional 30 days to and see where this sits. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> that makes sense for me. I, I do think we need that. Well, May 25th, obviously, is Memorial Day. So, you won't be able to do it that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. There's nothing going on. The Maybe 18, 19, 20th? <laughs> well, technically, we only have to have one public hearing for the budget, <laughs> and that is for the um, constant yield. For the constant yield. We don't have to have three. I'm good. I'm three good. Nights well, like, like Jim said, if it's the same budget as last year, we don't have to have hearings on it. Right. That's something We've already had, had that heard, so. Okay. Well, and so then come we'll, out with a come out with a new. I schedule. would say that, right? It's the same budget. Well, the only thing that I sort of put out there is still the maintenance of effort, which it, it currently is required. So, and, and I, again, I think depending on how long this goes, if schools are out to the end of the year, I think you're going to see that's going to get adjusted because I, yeah. the larger us not as bad the larger counties when you're talking 80 90 million dollars more and and with a down economy i think there may be some heartache there so i think they're going to have to look at that whatever the savings is by not being there the second half of the year basically what that is and it's going to have to be applied i don't, I don't know how else you could it's do more it than that and kind of i think is 1.2 billion for the yeah. school board right. yeah okay we can, craft, we can craft a new schedule the only thing that we constraint we have is we have to have it done by the end of this fiscal year and we have to have leave enough time for the finance staff to load the budget into the system that takes some time and we don't want to get them too Understood. too compressed so, at the end of this to get it all up and running so that we can we were operate. compressed in the last recession yeah it was it was <laughs> tough thinking end of may to have it out well, i'm thinking whatever he's got to do to make that work but the longer we have to sit and see where this Figure you know, out what time you're going to need, and then right. yeah. back, that's yeah, the days of quarterly. If you right. can't work get a whole other month, yeah. then three weeks. Work right. the schedule backwards. Go yeah. what you need okay. backwards and find yeah. it. Sure. Find we it. can do that. We can do that. Do you want to meet with every department or just the major departments? Or if they do don't have, have a big ask over, I, I don't care. Well, DES I mean, has got a big ask. Yes. I said well, ask. Be, yeah, that's ask. Yeah. Ask. <laughs> I think that, the major issues that ask we when we met with them the real the only the issues that we discussed frankly were the enhancements and their capital budget requests there was nothing in their <clears throat> basic budgets that was worth talking about mm -hmm. well the board's going to have a large one we already know that way more than just maintenance of effort obviously but again they'll know more in probably 30 days as to where they're going to be too so it's probably better to have them out far out as we can get them if we don't need to wait, we can tell them right now that <laughs> if their best, if in the best case scenario, they're getting two and a half. The best case scenario. 
So they're asking for five total, right? Right. So the best case scenario is two and a half. But more than likely, depending on how this goes, they're looking at 1.6. Yeah, that was our original plan, Correct. two and a half. Plus, right. two weeks ago, right it was now, two and a half. 1.7 from the state. That's what I mean. So they get an additional yeah. 1.7 from the state. Correct. Which they still say is not additional, but I'm sorry. Right. On the paper, it says additional, so. Okay. All right, so we're good there. That's the game plan. All right, we will get you a revised schedule out uh, early next week. Sure. Or by the end of this week, we'll, we'll work something out and get it around okay. and give I, you as much time as we can. I would certainly have some reservations about going anything over maintenance if we weren't doing anything on salaries. I, I agree. That's what I said. So the, the, I said the best case scenario, if things, this blows over and stops in a week. That's right. That's so hopeful, it's Christmas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's an optimist. <laughs> Damn right. I'm all about giving some hope. So. All right, that's it. Uh, that's all of our presentations and our action items. We do have one piece of legislation for I, I that we can vote on. If you want to turn to tab number seven, this is County Ordinance 20-02, and this is the establishment of the Queen Anne's County Farm Land Preservation Fund that can be voted on tonight. doesn't have to be. Okay. I, I'd rather We're going to wait. We're going to wait. You want to hold on that one sure. as well? Take a we'll pass. Yep. Okay. Uh, Margie, do you have? I think we all wholeheartedly, just to put out there, I think we all wholeheartedly support it, but just right now with the financial side in kind of a flux, it's best to be. Right. Very wise. <laughs> you said something on my desk? It's an email up there. The email? Public comment? The one you got in the trash. Yeah, and that brings us to uh, our. Is it the Julie R? Is that the one? I got, you got that one too. You get it? So we have. Uh, Let me print it for you. Press and public comment by email at public comment at qac.org. And I think we had a few questions. Mark, help yourself. <laughs> They're being printed. Or if we can start, you want to do roundtable? We have commissioners' roundtable as well. <coughs> you know what? Well, yeah, we'll start on the round table. And Mr. Wilson, the senior, age has privileges. We're going to let you go first. Oh. Well, way to hustle. It's uh, hard to remark on anything when, when a single headline sort of blots out every other story in the county. And uh, I have spent a good bit of time with uh, our diligent, hardworking county administrator and the doc over in the uh, health building, and all I can tell you is that the uh, air of concern over there could hardly be overemphasized, and uh, they've been doing a terrific job, and I'm awfully proud of our crew, and uh, I think we're plowing along as good as we can. I, uh, you know, I think that the next few weeks we're going to find out whether this containment limits the spike on the eastern shore, which we've hoped it would, and uh, it's all in the air right now, and uh, we will more to come next session, handing it off to District 2, 3, 4, 4, 3, whatever. Um, I, would just, I would just reiterate uh, what Dr. Ciotola said about the importance of uh, social distancing, washing your hands, um, staying home, really minimize your outdoor activity uh, as far as crowds. 
I think that we look as good as we do and we continue to look as good as we are. Uh, it would be because we took um, his advice, the advice that, that our governor's given us and even the advice that our president's given us. Um, that's it. Just okay. be diligent. <clears throat> Good. Yep. Jack, you want to go? Um, yeah, I want to echo what Phil said. Honestly, I, I, everybody in Queen Anne's County deserves a big pat on the back. I think mm -hmm. um, we've done a great job. We have 50,000-plus people here in the county. We have one case. That's a pretty good percentage. Um, you heard Dr. C say, you know, he gave some real numbers today that I think should be comforting to some people in terms of, 80% of this is mild, 20% um, uh, is may require hospitalization. So um, just keep that in mind and be diligent and take your temperatures and keep that, uh, you know, let, let's get through this thing and just have that one case. That would be great. Um, but something also Dr. C said, and I, I kind of want to uh, highlight too, is he said, you know, we're making the playbook up on this as we go along. And I think th that can't be taken lightly because I think when we get into situations like this that, uh, you know, I've heard it said once, I've heard it a thousand times, unprecedented. But when you have unprecedented situations like this, it's a time to make sure, even though you're trying to work through it and you're trying to do the best job you can to work through it, is to take notes and figure out the things you did right, the things you did wrong, and truly make a playbook so the next time, whether it's this administration or future administrations, they have something to look back on. And so we don't have to use that word unprecedented all the time. We, you know, we have a precedence, and here it is, and this is what we did to, uh, to get through it. So I think that was well put by Dr. C to say that, and I think we need to do our due diligence moving forward to make sure that we do everything we can to uh, be able to mitigate something like this in the future and have a, our own playbook to handle it. Um, the other thing was, uh, oh, so, so, so all the bad news, we did get some good news. And I don't know whether the coronavirus caused it. I don't, I'm not sure what drove it. But um, as Annapolis went out of session, um, I guess they saw the need for the, uh, uh, the connectivity in the rural areas as it became highlighted when the schools got put out. So they passed the Chop Tank Electric bill for them to be able to uh, – push broadband out into all the unserved areas on the Eastern Shore. And I think that is a huge win for the Eastern Shore. I think it's a game changer. Um, and, and, and obviously, tomorrow morning you won't wake up with Internet in your unserved area now. But just know that there's hope. It's coming. They have put out a, a preliminary time frame of about 12 to 18 months to start lighting people up. And as their schedule ramps up, they'll be more aggressive um, to get people lit up in the unserved areas. So that's great news. The other thing that came out of it, and again, another one that I'm very happy to say, the uh, CTE bill to let uh, Chesapeake College become a uh, CTE school for the five counties was passed. It will be signed by the governor, so we will be able to work with one or more counties now to establish a full-time CTE programs at Chesapeake College, which is a great win for our students and our businesses and everything here on the shore. So that's all I got. All right. All right. Um, so just the people know out there, since the whole COVID-19 broke, we've all been in frequent contact with each other throughout this, trying to, what can the county do to help? Um, and the county staff has done an amazing job. Todd, everybody, fantastic. There have been, you. you know, daily calls, all director level, talking about what can we do to get services to the citizens and protect the citizens. Um, 
uh, I've been able to participate on, on some of those, and I'm just observing on it and seeing what everybody in the county staff is doing. And it's a phenomenal job. So everybody in the county, I, I really hope you understand um, what, a, what an excellent, you know, county staff you have here that's working for you. Um, and then our county citizens are also excellent. Um, you guys have been coming out to support businesses that are closed. When restaurants had to stop serving, um, but they could only do takeout, there's been a huge groundswell of people trying to go get takeout from the restaurants, try to keep these restaurants in, in business. Um, our businesses who always support things that are going on in the county, um, I know they appreciate it and they've been creative and trying to come up with new ways of how do they stay afloat so that those businesses can be there um, when we get through this, because we will get through this. Um, if you have kids that are in a dance school, martial arts, gymnastics, or something like that, they're not going to that right now. If you can afford it, still pay for that. Pay, pay those businesses that your kids can't go to right now because they won't be there if you don't do that. So if you can afford it, if you can, if you can make that happen, think about those businesses and, and make those payments. It's really important. Um, the economic impact from what's going on, we don't know. It's going to take a lot of money from the federal and the state government. The county, we will be discussing things that we can do, but it's going to be enormous proportions. Um, so whatever we can do now to keep these businesses alive, I think that's very important. Um, other citizens have been stepping up to, to, to help. Uh, we were discussing earlier getting food to, um, to the students when they're not in class. Um, Laura Marie, Justin Davis took it upon themselves to uh, get donations, deliver food to, to students. I'm hoping that gap is being filled and, and we're going to get closer to making sure that the programs that we have in place are going to get to all the students. But a particular thanks to them and everybody who has donated um, supplies to them to get to uh, those students who otherwise may not have meals. Um, uh, it's just been amazing to see the community come together. Um, Stay safe, though. This is, you know, this is something real, and you, you don't, just because you feel okay doesn't mean you might not have something and you can transmit it. So just keep that in mind, and um, let's get through this. Hats off to you for recognizing Justin Davis and the folks that he's rallied to, um, right. to make sure that folks eat. And it's not just them. There, I know there's tons of other sure. citizens out there that are, that are doing things community-based organizations, and I'm not meaning to leave anybody out, but I, I wanted to make sure I, I made a mention of that, but obviously everybody who's doing stuff, um, you know, the shelter is, the food bank's being filled even, up. The even some of our restaurants that are closed down are donating food out of their Yeah, closed Rams had closed down, and they, and they, so. donate, they donated their food. So, I mean, it's, it's not surprising. It's a great community. Everybody always comes together, but it's worth saying. Good. Go ahead. Good. Okay, I, we had uh, one individual send us uh, an email because we could not do press and public comment. I'm going to read this individual's email. Uh, in no way do the commissioners condone or agree or disagree. Just I want to read what's been sent to us because that's how we set this up. So this comes from uh, Julie Roberts. Uh, this is the individual's name. Uh, it's titled, It's More Than COVID-19. Thank you for this opportunity, opportunity, excuse me. All the talk is about COVID-19 patients. I believe people aren't taking it seriously because it doesn't apply to them. I'm only 19 and I'm healthy was the response I got from a kid walking down the street bouncing a basketball. 
Most reports I've seen define underlying illnesses as heart disease and cancer treatments, but again, older. A recent NBC report lists obesity as an underlying illness. That's a whole lot of America. People hear about hospitals running out of beds, personal protection equipment, and even doctors. But they only mention COVID-19. Again, old people. What about six-year-olds who break their arms falling out of trees or slice open fingers from kitchen accidents? Or six-week premature babies who do, not, who do need ventilators, do they pull a ventilator out of her 80-year-old grandma? And they are quickly running out of masks and PPE equipment, personal protective equipment. What about surgery for the broken arm? What about infection because the, the handmade mask was less than perfect? Infection, sepsis, death for a six-year-old. It's not just about coronavirus. It's not a them. It's a you. Respectfully, Julia Roberts. So that's an interesting email. Uh, and, and the reason I say that's an interesting me email because I think that personifies maybe what the public is looking at from the – and I'm going to go out on that limb because I, I live out on that limb <laughs> – but um, what the public's constantly putting out there. When I say the public, I mean social media. I mean the news uh, rating agent, the news agencies. Uh, you know, uh, yes, this is something that does affect individuals with underlying health issues, and it does seem to target the elderly because maybe they're just not strong enough to go through a flu, go through something like this. But uh, as of today, I believe there's been four deaths, and as of today. We are two days away from when schools close. So we've, we've gone 12 days since they've closed schools. Is that correct? Thursday? Yeah. 12 days since they've closed schools, and Queen Anne's County has one case. One case. And that individual is resting at home fine. So, you know, I'm not downplaying this, this situation, but I will say the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Everybody's going to wake up, and we're going to be fine. You know, we just got to be careful, and I, when I say careful, I'm talking to our senior citizens and those with underlying conditions to limit your access to the rest of the public uh, until they get a better handle on this, and for the public to, to do the same. Just, you know, you, you have to be conscious of your surroundings, and you know, we're all six feet apart here, and, and they're telling us this is the way, this is the new norm until somebody comes up with a vaccine or, or this virus goes away. So, you know, I, I also want to let you know that as commissioners, we are all involved in this process. Uh, at any given moment, one of us is on the uh, emergency operation command on, on a phone conversation with uh, Dr. Ciatola and in that, in that group, the, the health departments. Todd sits in, our county uh, administrator sits in uh, on the state level with the governor's briefings. Uh, tomorrow, I get one, uh, so that's going to be my first one that I'll be on. Uh, so. Looking forward to hearing what, what kind of news they're going to disseminate there. But we're all tied into this, and we're all doing everything we humanly can, to, one, to keep the public safe, because that's our number one priority. But, you know, six months, two months, one month, a year from now, we are going to get past this. And one of, some of our concerns that we're now starting to look at is, once we do get past it, what's Queen Anne's County going to look like? How many businesses are we going to lose? You know, so these are the things that, we, you know, it, it, it is a 
double-edged sword. You know, we, we want to save lives, but in the same token, we want to save businesses and we want to save, you know, families from uh, suffering, you know, these hardships. So, you know, it's, I, I'm a half, the glass is half full kind of guy. I think that everybody deserves hope. So what I'm going to tell you now is Sunday, there was 244 coronavirus confirmed cases in the state of Maryland. Uh, and the reason I use Sunday is because last week, I think it was either Wednesday or Thursday, in one of President Trump's uh, news conferences, I, I don't remember the female that, that's doing all the data, walked up to the mic and said, in the next four to five days, we're going to see a massive spike in cases. And that was the worst case scenario. Well, here we are four to five days from last Thursday. And Sunday, we had 244 cases. Monday, we had 288 cases. And these are uh, all on, you can find these on the internet, but Johns Hopkins is the one tabulating these every 10 o'clock every morning. And Monday's 288 was 44 more than Sunday's. And Tuesday, this morning, was 349, which is 61 more than Monday's. So, you know, the intent of all this um, separation was to try and deaden that spike and make it into a hump versus a spike. So they're encouraging numbers to me because we're not doubling the number of cases. You know, we're not tripling the number of cases. I mean, they're going up. They're going up by 20 percent, you know, but and we expect that. And I think that everybody else expects that. And so these numbers to me are encouraging. So sooner or later, those numbers, God willing, will start to go back down again. So just keep that in mind. And out of those 349 cases, there has been four deaths. Uh, you know, we, we'd like to find out how many people actually are in a hospital uh, and how many people actually are on a resp- respiratory uh, issues and on ventilators. I mean, these are numbers I think the public should know because the public keeps hearing we're running out of ventilators, we're running out of this, we're running out of that, and uh, I, I don't know that I'm going to say that's right, wrong, or indifferent. I, I know people in the medical profession, and I don't, I don't see this, so I don't want to belittle it, but I think that uh, here in Queen Anne's County, uh, I guess we're blessed because as a, as a farming county uh, in one of the eastern shore counties, I think we have, what, five cases total on the whole eastern shore? And uh, it's because we aren't jammed into one building. We, we are spread out. And, and I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to keep going on about this, but, you know, if, if you could do anything, the public I'm speaking to, our citizens, if you do anything, take a break from Facebook. Take a break from the news, even if it's just 24 hours. You know, uh, I know it's going to rain tomorrow, but Thursday's going to be a beautiful day. So sit out back, enjoy the day, and, uh, you know, we will, we will get past this. And I want to speak now just to our county employees. I want to echo what everyone else has said. You know, we understand the stress you may be under, uh, but you are well protected, well looked after. We appreciate what you're doing, and we need you to keep doing what you're doing because we need to bring some normalcy to this pandemic. And the front line is county government, and uh, and I support you know each and every one of you, and I'd work beside any one of you. So you know uh, we're here, and I'm speaking for the county. We're here, and we intend to stay here and keep county government open uh, until somebody mandates that we have to close it. So with that being said, I'll take a motion for adjournment.
Make a motion to adjourn. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you very much.